What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Real Deal Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to take a look at all the talking points on the 2022 FIFA World Cup taking place in Qatar. This is an exciting tournament. There's been a lot of talking points, all the buildup, all the entertainment, all the excitement, and all the controversy. And you're going to get to hear my thoughts on everything that this tournament has offered, is offering, and is yet to offer. So sit back, relax, enjoy. And uh, I'm going to be discussing all the buildup and news to this tournament. You're going to get to hear my predictions for what I thought was going to happen in this tournament um, before the tournament kicked off. And you're going to get to hear all of my thoughts on what has taken place so far, the upsets, all the matches, all the talking points, and there's certainly been plenty of them. And what my thoughts are on what is going to happen for the rest of the tournament looking ahead. So let's start by talking about all the buildup and news to this World Cup, which there's been so much to talk about even before the tournament kicked off. Tournament host Qatar, a very small nation uh, that is a peninsula that sticks out into the Persian Gulf in the Middle East. I believe it is the first Middle Eastern country to host the FIFA World Cup. And there's been a lot of controversy over, was this the right choice to begin with? You take a look at the previous World Cup locations, uh, 2010 in South Africa, obviously 2006 in Germany. We can go ahead and include them. 2006, Germany. 2010, South Africa. 2014 was in Brazil. 2018 was in Russia. And this year in Qatar. Those are all the World Cups that have occurred in my lifetime. And up to this point, all of those nations, I'd say, were very successful World Cups. I wouldn't say Russia was phenomenal, uh, but it was not a bad World Cup. Um, and um, hosting the World Cup in Russia, um, they definitely have a lot of passion for that sport there. Um, they have club teams such as Zenit and CSK Moscow, who are uh, teams that are used to competing at a high level and have participated in European tournaments such as the UEFA Champions League uh, throughout the past number of years. So those countries in which the previous World Cups have been hosted in, not really any debate or little debate uh, in terms of was that the right country to go to or are these countries that can host a World Cup, are there sufficient resources to host a World Cup there? Is there sufficient landmass? Do you have a passion for the sport in these countries? I think all of those are things that have to be mentioned and have to be talked about in choosing a World Cup venue. And then FIFA in 2010 decided to pull a rabbit out of that when they decided to vote on Qatar for hosting the 2022 FIFA World Cup. And that decision has come with a lot of backlash. A lot of people think, including myself, that this World Cup could have been hosted in many different countries that have a more realistic and just more efficient way, potentially, of hosting a World Cup and certainly the passion for the game that a host country has for soccer. And let's just say soccer is not one of the first things that you think about when we're talking about Qatar. So a lot of controversy in that decision. But are there some upsides? 
yeah, there's upsides and there's downsides. We're going to talk about those right now. So what are the upsides actually of this World Cup taking place in Qatar? What are they? What are the upsides? Well, first of all, all the stadiums are very close to each other. I mean, Qatar is a country that going north-south, south-north, or east-west, you can traverse that country in a very short amount of time. I mean, really, you can. In a very short amount of time, you can traverse that country. Uh, Qatar is a country that in just two, three hours, you've seen everything. And its population center is all in Doha, which is its capital. Uh, Doha is the center of this World Cup. And uh, that is where the vast majority of the population lives. Salvage a few exceptions in cities like Alcor, which is a host city that is north of Qatar, excuse me, that is north of Doha in Qatar, that is on the Persian Gulf and has a decent population center. I mean, the rest of the country is just desert. So in terms of the size of the country, that's a benefit. Players do not have to deal with long plane rides, deal with long bus rides, going from here to there everywhere. Uh, as all the stadiums, according to the WorldCupGuide.com, all of the stadiums are within a 55-kilometer radius. That is 35 miles. All the stadiums are within 35 miles of Doha, which is the capital of Qatar. And uh, if we look at the actual number of stadiums, there's a total of eight stadiums, and there's three host cities. Doha has the vast majority of the stadiums. Six of the eight stadiums, I believe. There's eight. Uh, I believe it's eight. I'm just counting here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah. We have eight stadiums uh, in which this tournament is taking place in. And you have the host city of Alcor, which has the Al Bayt Stadium, the host city of Al Wakra, which has the Al Janub Stadium. Alcor is north of Doha, Al Wakra is south. And the rest of the stadiums are located in different parts of Doha, some more closer to the city center and some in the outskirts of the city. You have the Ahmad bin Ali Stadium, the Al Thumama Stadium, the Education City Stadium, the Khalifa International Stadium, that is the only stadium of this World Cup that has previously been there, where Qatar hosts a lot of their national team games. And you have the Lusail Stadium, which is going to host the final of the World Cup. That is a stadium that has a seating capacity of 80,000 plus fans. And then the other stadium that has gotten a lot of the talking points is Stadium 974. And that 974 stands for the number of shipping containers that have been used to build that stadium. And that stadium will be deconstructed after the World Cup. So those are all the host stadiums and the three host cities in which this World Cup is taking place. So that's an advantage. You have everything close by. You do not have to travel an infinite amount of time to go and uh, play your games for those teams that are in the tournament. So the other, uh, I think, advantage is that Qatar is centrally located for the vast majority of countries taking place in this World Cup. Qatar is pretty much in the center in terms of where it is located on the earth. It's pretty much centrally located. It's pretty much in the center. 
everyone has a pretty equidistant travel time or travel route to Qatar for this tournament. So there's not really any excuses in terms of, well, we had a long trip, jet lag, um, it was not easy to get here. Pretty much everyone salvaged the exception of a few countries like maybe Iran and Saudi Arabia who happen to be right next to Qatar. Everyone pretty much has, you know, a lengthier, long trip to Qatar. Um, so equidistant travel. And at the same time, that long, lengthy trip can be a downside because um, it certainly might make players more jet-lagged. It might take them more time to get up to speed with, in training during the few, first few days. Um, but that is why uh, you do things like what the U.S. did. The U.S. team was the first team to arrive in Qatar, and they were there 10 days before the tournament started. So they had plenty of time, and they made sure that any issue from the long travel was not going to be a problem because they arrived there 10 days before the World Cup even started. They had their training camp. They had all their training sessions, getting to know the area, familiarize themselves with their surroundings. So the U.S. team was smart in how they approached all of the pre-tournament uh, layout. And then you have the fact that this is a holiday tournament. It's happening during the holiday season. It's a once-in-a-lifetime event. Probably never going to happen again. Uh, but that does make it exciting that it is during the holiday season. Although... For a lot of young people like myself that are in college or in high school or in middle school, obviously the fact that it's during the holiday season means that it might be more difficult to gather with friends and watch the tournament and watch games uh, all together just because of the fact that you have classes, you have responsibilities going on. So it does make it a bit more complicated to watch games. Um, but certainly this past week, which has been uh, the Thanksgiving break week, um, we've definitely been watching all of the entertaining games that have occurred so far. And then I'd say that the last upside, at least for FIFA, is the amount of revenue that, you're, that they're going to get from this tournament. Um, and let's be honest, this was really the main reason that they went to Qatar. I mean, the main reason that FIFA chose Qatar to host the World Cup was because of the amount of money that they were going to get from this tournament. Qatar pretty much bought this World Cup. They pretty much did. And according to a Sportigo.com article, and Sportigo is a uh, news website which discusses all of the economics and business sides of major sporting events. The World Cup obviously is no exception to this. In an article written by Andrew Zimblist, uh, very recently, November 10th, this article was published. And he describes that FIFA is going to approximately make $4.7 billion in revenue. Total cost for this tournament, according to Sportigo, is $1.7 billion. So FIFA is going to make a net gain of almost $3 billion in terms of profit from this tournament. And those $3 million are going to be dispersed um, between... Its own operations, so 10% of that money is going to go to FIFA for its operations. And the rest of it is going to be distributed to the 200-plus national soccer associations across the globe to promote the, to promote the sports development. 
And the actual cost of the tournament, I mean, this is just mind-boggling. I mean, I mean, the numbers just speak for themselves. The cost that it takes for Qatar to host this World Cup is $40 billion more than its GDP. Qatar's GDP is approximately $180 billion. That is this year. That is updated. That is Qatar's current GDP for 2022. The cost of hosting the tournament is $220 billion. The cost of hosting the tournament alone is $40 billion more than the GDP of the entire nation of Qatar. I mean, it's the amount of money that these people have, where they're getting it from, and that they're using to host this tournament is just ridiculous. I mean, these are record-breaking numbers. I don't know what the numbers are for the World Cup in Russia, for what it was in Brazil, in South Africa, Germany. I guarantee you it was not $220 billion the cost of hosting the tournaments there. Now, granted, it's probably in the first place going to be higher because Qatar does not have like in those countries, a bunch of soccer stadiums to host a World Cup. So they had to build them. It's going to cost a lot of money. But then you have other issues such as dealing with demand, the number of people that are going to be incoming into the country, having to deal with all of the amenities, all of the fan fests, having to deal with the influx of people, certainly in terms of the airport. They redeveloped and revived the airport. Expanding the metro area of Doha. These are all things in which money has been spent to upgrade and build for this tournament. So this $220 billion investment is also, for Qatar, a contribution into its long-term development. And according to Sportigo, Qatar is hoping for long-term benefits from this World Cup, such as boosting tourism, foreign trade investment, and even perhaps Qatar may gain a more significant role in geopolitics. So these are all things that we have yet to see and what the aftermath effects of this tournament are going to be. But when it is all said and done, according to Sportigo, Qatar will have spent more by a factor of three or four times than any other country to host a mega sporting event. I mean, it's it's just mind-boggling, these numbers. From a profit-making point of view, it's great for FIFA. They're going to make $5 billion in revenue. So, I mean, I can see why they're going there. Yeah, that's great. But let's see if FIFA actually uses those $5 billion in a way that's going to help promote the sport and is going to distribute that money accordingly to, okay, you want to bring the World Cup to Qatar because you want to bring new fans into the game. That's great. I think it's a good idea because clearly after the opening game last week, you can tell that there is not a culture, a sophisticated culture of soccer in that country. And we're going to get to the opening game later when I talk through all of the different games that have occurred so far in this tournament. But okay, let's use those billions of dollars, FIFA, and actually invest it in areas that 
should be invested in countries that could use that money to promote the sport, to grow the sport, to develop the sport, open academies, get players involved, get the youth involved. So let's see how FIFA spends this money. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the coming months after the tournament. But bottom line is the economics of this tournament are just mind-boggling. Just to recap, FIFA, according to Sportico, that is S-P-O-R-T-I-C-O dot com, FIFA expects to make $4.7 billion in revenue. The cost of the tournament is $1.7 billion for FIFA. And the cost of Qatar, so Qatar's investment into this tournament is at least $220 billion. At least $220 billion. And that is $40 billion more than its entire GDP for this year. And just as a comparison to the previous World Cups, as it said in the Sportico article, it is two to three times more than any other country and any other country and what they have spent for a World Cup. Just Mind-boggling, these numbers. They awarded the World Cup. FIFA awarded the World Cup in 2010 to Qatar. And Qatar has averaged approximately $18.3 billion a year for the last 12 years in order to host this World Cup. Over 10% of their GDP. I mean, I don't know where they're getting the money. Obviously, they haven't. Either they're taking loans. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Now let's hope that the actual revenue that FIFA makes and Qatar makes from this World Cup, all I hope for is that it is used appropriately and all of this money is allocated in the areas where it really should be allocated and not just wasted on political agendas and things that have nothing to do with soccer. Let's actually use the money and Qatar, if you want to build a future in soccer if you want to grow the game of soccer in your country you need to work with fifa and you need to invest the money appropriately make your country into a new modern footballing nation that has also better conditions for its citizens especially for migrant workers and we're going to get into that in just a second because that's one of the other big talking points about this tournament and let's hope that fifa uses that money to grow the game appropriately in nations where there genuinely needs to be upgrades, there needs to be investment in the sport, and you know, that is why the World Cup is a global event. So I get the idea of trying to host it there. We're going to see what happens. And I will say this. If the tournament continues to pan out the way these first six match days have gone, could be one of the best tournaments of all time. I mean, we've already had some massive storylines, massive upsets, and we've had some games where the scorelines have just been outrageous. So it's there's definitely been entertaining. There's been entertainment. It's an entertaining tournament. It's very exciting. But all this controversy and all these talking points do not go away because of the tournament. So that is the economic side of this tournament. Again, go to sportico.com, S-P-O-R, T-I-C-O for more information 
on the actual economic and business side of hosting a World Cup in Qatar. So now, what are the biggest downsides? So obviously, FIFA's going to get a lot of money, right? That's great. But one of the biggest downsides is um, the women's rights, the labor rights, the migrant workers, and the politics. And it's hard to look at this tournament and look at Qatar as a country hosting the World Cup. It's hard to look at this without talking about these issues because they are front and center. According to Reuters.com, 10 European nations, including England and Germany, these are not small itty-bitty countries that have played in a few World Cups. No, England has won the World Cup. Granted, it was a while ago. It was 1966. And Germany has hosted the World, uh, has hosted the World Cup before and has won the tournament four times before. So these are not, you know, know-nothing nations. These are, you know, contenders for the tournament. These are big footballing nations. So including those, 10 European nations have sent letters to FIFA requesting that FIFA invest in correcting the social issues going on in Qatar. According to Reuters, 10 footballing associations of European nations, including England and Germany, have pushed FIFA to take action to improve the rights of migrant workers in Qatar. And they're not the only ones speaking out against it. Denmark has decided to not go with any family members. The Danish national team has gone to the World Cup with none of its family members as a sign of protest uh, against the injustices happening in Qatar. You also have the Australian soccer team and the Australian Soccer Federation that has spoken out against Qatar's record on human rights and other things such as same-sex relationships. So clearly, a lot of countries not really much agreeing, not loving the choice that FIFA made back in 2010. So there's your first downside. You have a bunch of top countries who have been going after FIFA saying, well, you definitely, you know, we're not going to say it's the worst thing in the world, but let's just say you didn't pick the greatest country to host this tournament in. I mean, that's what they're saying. And then you want to talk about another thing that I, I think nobody has talked about. I haven't heard anybody talking about this, but I mean, just the fact that FIFA actually thought they could host a tournament in Qatar in the summer. According to Reuters, FIFA awarded the tournament to the Middle Eastern country in 2010 with the understanding it would be held during the summer. Uh, hello, do you not know the average temperature in Qatar in the summer? According to Reuters, Temperatures exceed 40 degrees Celsius. For all of my U.S. listeners, that is 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, for any of you that do not know, FIFA has rules and regulations which define when games can be played in appropriate weather conditions. If the temperature is above a certain height, 
If it is above a certain point, games cannot be played. They cannot be played. And that is something that FIFA has always made very clear. But the fact that they actually thought that they could host the World Cup in the summer is beyond my comprehension. I mean, they have these people that were running FIFA at the time had zero brain cells. And surprise, in 2014, excuse me, 2015, FIFA recommended that Qatar host a shorter World Cup because the World Cup is less than a month. It started on the 20th of November. It's going to end on December 18th, which is the World Cup final. And FIFA said, yeah, Qatar, actually, can you move the World Cup to November and December? Because, you know, it took us five years to figure out that it's not going to be a good idea to host a World Cup in 40 degrees Celsius plus weather conditions. I mean, you wouldn't even have to stand out there for 10 minutes. I mean, you'd have a bunch of people dying of heat exhaustion or suffering of heat exhaustion. Especially with a lot of the day matches. So I don't know what FIFA was thinking with that. I had no idea about this until I actually read this article. And I looked into it more and there's other sources that back this up. But it is pretty mind-boggling that that is actually what they thought. So, of course, they moved it over to the holiday season. Because, yeah, FIFA, note to self, uh, do not think that you can do a World Cup in an area of the world like Qatar where you're going to be dealing with 40 degrees Celsius, as I said, 104 degree Fahrenheit plus temperatures during the summer. And the World Cup has always been during the summer. One, because of the weather. In most nations, it may get hot, it may be warm, but it's acceptable. And most importantly, because it is for most countries, for most leagues during the offseason. The offseason for the vast majority of leagues around the world uh, is between the months of June, end of May, June, all the way through beginning, middle of August. That is the offseason. That's usually when the World Cup is held during the summer. With the exception of the United States, that is the case for most countries, especially in Europe. It's obviously where the big leagues are. So uh, that is another disadvantage that we're going to get into shortly uh, about uh, the, the World Cup taking place during this year. Uh, another one of the uh, talking points, obviously, what these uh, teams and nations and these federations have been speaking out against is uh, the fact that the tournament in Qatar has a lot of human rights and social violations. Uh, and actually, according to Reuters, the United States Department of Justice actually investigated in trying to see whether there were bribes paid to secure the votes in order to host the World Cup 10 years ago. And obviously the organizers of this tournament, obviously all of the people in Qatar, all of the organization, you know, FIFA, they say, nope, there was nothing involved. And we don't know. I'm not going to speculate on this too much. But the fact that the U.S. Department of Justice had to get involved 
in just the matter of where this tournament was being held tells you a lot about what people think in terms of where this tournament is being hosted. So let's just say FIFA didn't get the mark on this one. They Very controversial pick. That is for sure. But then you have the problems of, uh, obviously, um, how women in Qatar are treated. There's a lot of human rights violations. A lot less freedom than in Western countries. It's very secluded. The issue of migrant workers is ridiculous. Um, according to Reuters, Amnesty and other rights groups have led calls for FIFA to compensate migrant workers in Qatar for human rights abuses by setting aside $440 million, which matches the actual prize money of winning the World Cup for the winning team. And I 100% support that because these migrant workers have been very much underpaid. The conditions they've had to work in were horrible. I mean, let's just say it how it is. Very little food, little water, very long working shifts. And I don't know the numbers, but a lot of people, a lot of people died during the process of building these stadiums, building the infrastructure, the working conditions were not okay. Were not okay. Obviously, women's rights and all of the um, LGBTQ plus talking points and rights for those groups, you know, that's no exception. And they are also part of the conversation. And uh, these are things that need to be corrected. I mean, that's the thing. You know FIFA, in terms of FIFA's point of view, FIFA knows that these things are happening. I mean, this is this is not like, oh, we just found out, you know, in the last couple of years after, you know, giving the tournament to this country that there's all these issues going on. Like, no. Like, this is stuff that, you know, if you haven't been living under a rock for the past decades, you would be at least aware that Qatar has some social and human rights issues. And um, one of the biggest things, obviously, have been these talking points. And, you know, if Qatar wants to become a modern nation that people respect, they're going to need to figure out these issues. Because it's been unacceptable how a lot of these for example, workers have been treated how women are treated in that country. It, it really is not okay. And FIFA has written back to all of these countries and all of these teams saying, oh yeah, by the way, let's just focus on the soccer. Let's not talk about these things. We don't need to talk about these things. According to Reuters, FIFA has written to World Cup teams urging them to focus on the football and not let the sport be dragged into ideological or political battles. I get that in a sense. We don't want to be focusing on everything politics. And I agree in that sense that not everything has to be political. But you also did choose to host the country. You also did choose to host the World Cup in a country, FIFA, 
where these are problems that we cannot simply ignore. You can't ignore them. And I give credit to the teams and federations that have spoken out against these injustices because clearly these are things that need to be fixed in that country. It's not acceptable. It really is not acceptable. So those have been a lot of the big talking points um, about this World Cup and how people are being treated in that country. Um, let's just say it's not great. Now let's see, maybe after this World Cup, maybe some things will change. And let's hope, you know, all we can hope for is that this World Cup makes Qatar a better country, gives Qatar based on the money they're going to get, because they're going to get a lot of money from it. They're going to get billions of dollars in revenue, not just FIFA, but Qatar is. And let's hope that they use that money correctly. And they can start allowing more freedom for people in that country and provide better opportunity. So this World Cup can be a positive thing for Qatar, but it depends on what they do after what the after effects are and make you know make this certain I mean the one thing that's certain is Qatar's reputation is on the line here if the tournament's a great tournament it's going to help it if it's not a great tournament it's not going to help it and it seems so far that it must be said a lot if not most of the investments have been paying off but we can't just ignore about the problems that have been happening for decades in that country, and certainly the problems such as with the labor rights and women's rights that have been exacerbated over the last 12 years since it was announced Qatar would host the 2022 World Cup. Another one of the downsides that I think a lot of people haven't been talking about is it's a huge risk to take the World Cup and try to implement it in such a small country. Number one, the air travel demand has to be ridiculous. I mean, Qatar is expecting millions of people, millions of people for this tournament, according to Sportigo, according to the Sportigo article I referenced earlier, millions of people. And Qatar only has about 300,000 permanent residents in its country. And they're expecting millions of people to come for this tournament. So the actual air travel demand is insane. Obviously, they put some money into redeveloping a lot of the airport, expanding hotels, expanding the center of Doha. Obviously, while all this was happening, you have all of the issues that we've just mentioned going on. But they've been trying to prepare for dealing with the huge number of people around. And I'm going in air traffic control. As I mentioned in the first uh, episode, if you have not had a chance to listen to the first episode of this podcast, make sure that you go do that. Uh, and as I mentioned in that episode, I'm studying to become an air traffic controller. And the demand there for air traffic, I mean, I can't imagine what the air traffic controllers there in Doha have been dealing with in terms of the giant conglomeration and congestion of air traffic in the air. And it's not like Qatar is a huge nation where you have different centers or anything. No, it, it pretty much, I mean, my understanding is that everything 
is based in Doha because that's where the major population center is. It's not a big country, and it's not like you have a tremendous amount of airspace over the country to control all of these flights coming in. So definitely, for air traffic controllers, the past few months and throughout this tournament uh, have probably been a lot more stressful than usual. So I think that's a talking point that has to be mentioned. And the other big thing is it's a new part of the world, not known for soccer. You don't think of soccer when you think of Qatar. How passionate are these fans there? If you look at the previous countries, all pretty much had passion for the sport. Maybe some more than others. Maybe soccer was more important in certain days, but they all had a culture of soccer in them. They all had important leagues with important teams, and there is a sense that soccer is a part of the culture of those countries. And that includes South Africa and Russia. And I'm not saying South Africa has you know a, a great culture of Africa, but how that tournament turned out in 2010, how soccer has grown in South Africa, how it grew. And you could see just in the first game of that tournament what it meant to South Africa to score. When Shamalala scored that goal, that infamous goal, in the opening game of the 2010 FIFA World Cup, you can see that stadium erupt. Yeah, not the same as in the opening game in Qatar, which we're going to get to when we talk about the matches in just a little bit. Not exactly the same. Uh, because you can clearly tell that there is not an embedded culture of soccer in that country. I think we all knew or had an idea about this. But what happened in that opening game just cemented that. It really, really did. So I think that's another issue. And another downside has to be, I mean, really, no beer at the stadiums. Now, obviously, all the bars, places, restaurants there, they have beer. They have alcohol because they understand that there's going to be a lot of people there, you know, during the month that the tournament is happening, right? They have alcohol there. Fine. But I mean, the one thing I care about is being able to get a drink during the game. And this was just decided last Friday before the tournament. This was decided recently. Very recently. Um, Originally, the plan that FIFA had for this tournament is that there would be areas for drunk fans to sober up. That is what tournament chief, the CEO of Qatar 2022, Nazer Al-Qatar, stated that the intent was to make sure fans were safe and not harmful to others or themselves by making areas for drunk fans to sober up. But FIFA said on November 18th, this was just two days before the tournament started, that alcoholic beer will not be sold at stadiums, a last-minute reversal that raised questions among supporters about Qatar's ability to deliver on promises made to fans. And Qatar, and Qatar, for that matter, um, when talking about this issue with uh, the alcohol consumption, Qatar is the first Muslim country First Middle Eastern country to host the World Cup. And it is the first 
country to have strict controls on alcohol. Um, and it's very ironic that Budweiser is a sponsor of the FIFA World Cup. And there will be no beers in the stadiums to drink during the games. Uh, and according to Reuters, this will present a challenge for the organizers of the event, including one event that is sponsored by a beer band, a beer brand such as Budweiser, and the World Cup obviously often associated with beer drinking fans. So not a lot of people are going to be happy with that. That's for sure. Not a lot of people are going to be happy with that. So that also is a downside to this tournament. The reversal on the uh, beer policy that the tournament was originally going to have. Uh, and the other points I think they have to mention, number one, and this is I think where the general consensus is, is we get it FIFA, we get the money we get you want to expand the game but let's be honest you could have chosen a lot of better places to play the world cup again countries like brazil countries like south africa russia or germany which have been the previous world cup hosts in my lifetime germany 2006 south africa 2010 brazil in 2014 and obviously Russia in 2018. All of these countries are countries where you can feasibly see them hosting a World Cup. The one maybe where there's a little more debate, Russia, maybe South Africa, but those tournaments turned out well. And if there was any question in terms of the South Africa choice, that they were going to have a passion for the game of soccer, well, you saw that in the opening game. The opening game of the South Africa World Cup in 2010, when Shamalala scores that goal, stadium erupts. I mean, they love it. And that was a fantastic moment for that nation. And that event, the World Cup, there's an example of how a World Cup truly helped a nation. It really impacted that nation in such a positive way. It really did. And obviously, it was a great World Cup because Spain won it. And so I'm very happy about that. I have a soft spot for that that place. So I'd love to have another World Cup in South Africa. Because clearly, Spain has some pretty good luck down in that part of the world. But anyhow, obviously those countries, great World Cups. Then Qatar, yeah. Again, the biggest problem... Obviously, you have all of these issues going on with workers' rights, with women's rights, all of these things. The money, the how how maltreatment of workers and and citizens have been in, have been treated, the maltreatment in that country. Obviously, the lack of a passion for the sport, a true passion for the sport in those countries. And I mean, just take a look at the opening game. Compared to South Africa, yeah, and Qatar, the opening game was an absolute bust. It was an absolute bust. I mean, it really, really was. It was a bust. It really was a bust. And uh, when you have that happen in the first World Cup game, 
of the tournament, which you've spent billions of dollars to host, and you've been waiting for 12 years to host this tournament. For 12 years. It's not a good look. It really is not a good look. And remember what I said earlier on this episode, that the reputation of Qatar is on the line. In every possible way. With this tournament. And for the opening game of the tournament. To have almost all of its fans. Leave the game. The vast majority of them. The locals. And have just 30% of the stadium. For the second half. Is just embarrassing. It was an embarrassment. For the nation of Qatar. It was embarrassment to the team. It was embarrassment to FIFA. That the overwhelming majority of fans left that place at halftime or at the beginning of the second half. And by the time the rest of the game played out, you were almost playing in an empty stadium. I mean, that is just, for an opening game of the FIFA World Cup, that is unheard of. And there is a problem with that. I think there truly is a problem with that. And FIFA president Infantino, Gianni Infantino, who is the president of FIFA, came on to a press conference prior to the tournament and shared his thoughts on the World Cup and defended the World Cup with some pretty, I mean, extraordinarily incomprehensible reasons. (laughs) But just take a listen. Here is FIFA president Infantino's Defense of the 2022 FIFA World Cup held in Qatar. Here's what he had to say during the press conference prior to the beginning of this tournament. Today, I have uh, very strong feelings. I can tell you that. Today, I feel... uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today, I feel uh, a migrant worker. I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons to people. I've seen a lot of criticism of Gianni Infantino since I've joined FIFA in particular from the LGBTQI community. I am sitting here in a privileged position on a global stage as a gay man here in Qatar. We care at FIFA about everyone. We are an inclusive organization. I have a number of gay colleagues. So sitting here, I'm fully aware of the debate and I fully respect everyone's right and everyone's opinions to think differently. I get it. 
but I also know what we stand for. And when he says that we are inclusive, he means it. So there is FIFA president Gianni Infantino's thoughts on the World Cup being hosted in Qatar. And uh, the speaker after that, uh, the one that uh, comments after Infantino uh, on uh, the issue of the uh, gay rights matters and all these countries and organizations speaking out, that is Brian Swanson, and he is the FIFA Director of Media Relations of this tournament, of the organization. Um, and, well, uh, Mr. Infantino, uh, I would just like to say that... Um, if you felt all of these things, you would not have picked Qatar to host the damn World Cup. Okay? I hate to tell you, you wouldn't have picked it. Okay? If you felt all these things, if you felt so strongly about these things, why did you choose to host the World Cup in a country that literally has rights violations against these things you just mentioned in that press conference? So, why? And I know you weren't... The president at the time that this happened. But you could have done something about it. You've been the president long enough. You could have done something about it. You could have made it clear to Qatar that unless you make changes to your social and workers' rights, we're not hosting the tournament in your country. We're going somewhere else. And that would be unprecedented. But again, you're in a position of power to do that. You are in a position of power to do that. And you have nobody but yourself to blame about what has happened in Qatar, certainly since you've been the president at FIFA. So if you felt all those things, if you felt gay, if you felt like migrant workers, if you felt like everything that you stated, you probably wouldn't have picked Qatar to host the World Cup. So why is it in Qatar? I don't know. Ask yourself that question. And then... You have this guy, okay, that comes on. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. And you have this guy, the director of media relations, as I stated previously, uh, for FIFA and for this tournament, Brian Swanson. And he comes on with, well, I'm a gay in a position of power. Okay, so why don't you do something about it? I have many gay colleagues here. Okay, that's great. That That's really great. And I think that's great that FIFA is including gay people in their organization. I have no problem with that. I think that's great. I think that's great. But, I mean, that is a logical fallacy type of argument. This is like the I have black friends argument, so I'm in favor of black people. I'm in favor of their rights and everything. No. Demonstrate to me via policy, via your opinions, via where you choose to host the tournament. Uh, why don't you demonstrate to me those beliefs? I mean, it's a very subjective argument. Going to a subjective, personal argument like that is not an argument as to why you support gay rights. Okay? Saying that... That, that's basically saying, that argument is basically saying that if you do not have any gay friends, if you don't have black friends, that means you do not support the LGBT community, you're a racist, 
dot, dot, dot. If you don't have friends like that, then you don't support them. No, no offense or buts. If you don't have gay friends or gay colleagues, it means you are against gay people. That is what that argument implies. So a very stupid argument in order to try to defend the wrongdoings that Qatar has been consistently, consistently illustrating with gay and obviously LGBTQ rights. So if you want to go watch that, just look it up on YouTube. Tons of videos about it, opinions about it. But those are my thoughts on it. And honestly, I just think it's, you know, it, it is what it is. It is what it is. Um, and I really don't understand the arguments and the reasonings uh, there. It just makes hosting a World Cup in Qatar, I mean, it, it just makes it sound even worse, to be honest. And then, of course, Infantino has to go on the whole, well, we blame Europe after everything that we've done. Uh, I'd like to inform you, Senor Infantino, uh, that you wouldn't be the president of FIFA if Europe didn't exist. Because guess who invented soccer or football, however you want to call it, guess who invented it? It was in Europe. So, that's like biting the hand that feeds you. The reason it exists is because of Europe. The reason you are FIFA president is because of Europe. The reason that you are in a position of power in an organization that runs the footballing universe on this planet is because of Europe. Because that's where it was invented. Those are where the big leagues are. That is where the most money is spent. That is where all the marbles are put. That is where the most entertainment comes from in this sport. And those are just facts. If you look at it historically, if you look at where it is now, and you have other nations, I think great, it's grown tremendously. And other parts of the world that obviously have a very big passion for soccer. But those are all byproducts of Europe. Where the core of the sport started, where it was invented, where it first became popular, was in Europe. And that is just a historical fact. So, to, to blame Europe, I mean, you know, it, it's just, it's after the 3,000 years we've been at, okay, yeah. Not, not like the rest of the world didn't commit atrocities. You know, it was just Europe. It was just Europe, guys. Everyone else was, you know, blue skies, rainbows, and angels. Everyone else was, you know, really great. You definitely didn't have atrocities being committed by the Aztecs and the Incas who would rip the hearts out of their own people and display them before the sun gods and the pyramids. You know, you didn't have atrocities like that. I mean, really? Really? I mean, let, let's talk about Qatar. Let's talk about why it's in Qatar. Let's talk about what your plans are with Qatar, etc. I don't need a history lesson from some liberal, you know, so-called expert on the history of the world. Uh, I can see and learn the history of the world and read books. I don't need you to tell me what history is. Thank you very much. Why don't you do your job as FIFA president and focus on that? I mean, really. It's just, I don't get it. I don't get it. So, there's that. And then you have former 
FIFA president, Sepp Blatter, who was the FIFA president at the time that Qatar was given the World Cup in 2010. And he came out a few weeks before the tournament and openly said that it was a mistake. That's what he said. And he admitted that. Very openly. And here is Sky Sports reporting on this issue. Former FIFA president Sepp Blatter on the World Cup being hosted in Qatar. Saying, quote, it was a mistake. Here's Sky Sports News reporting on this issue. Blatter has admitted the decision to award the World Cup to Qatar when he was FIFA president was a mistake. Blatter, who's now 86, was the boss of FIFA in 2010 when its executive committee controversially voted for the World Cup to be held in Russia and Qatar in 2018 and 2022, respectively. Blatter claims he did not vote for Qatar and instead wanted a gesture of peace by hosting the two tournaments in Russia and then in the USA. Blatter has told a Swiss newspaper... He does expect accept responsibility for the tournament being held there. So there is Sky Sports reporting on this pretty significant news. Uh, the former FIFA president, again, Sepp Blatter, saying it was a mistake to host the World Cup in Qatar. And as it states in that report, he wanted Russia and the United States in order to promote peace to host the World Cups consecutively. Russia in 2018, the United States this year, in 2022. But it ended up with Qatar. So, uh, clearly, some very differing opinions from FIFA presidents, the current and the former FIFA president. And, obviously, what I mentioned earlier, the passion of the game that is needed in a host nation you know, what happened in the opening match was not, you know, not, not, not okay. It was embarrassing. So you could have gone to many other places. Then another downside to this tournament are the injuries that have occurred to many important players because of the timing of this tournament. Because of the fact that it's in the winter, because of the fact that it was moved during the middle of the season, Number one, the top leagues have to stop playing for an extended period of time during the middle of the season in a very unusual schedule for players. Players are not used to this. They're not. They're not used to this, and you can see the effects that it has in terms of injuries. Usually injuries that are during the season, fine. During the season, does not affect you for the World Cup. But in terms of Injuries now, it can take you out of the World Cup. When the World Cup's in the summer, you ain't got to worry about that. Most of the time, if you're injured during the season, you're injured for some portion of the season. But most players get to the World Cup during the summer in pretty good form. But now you have a bunch of injuries. Big players. Kareem Benzema, the Ballon d'Or winner. Sadio Mane, Paul Pogba, and Golo Kante. Jose Luis Gaya, Human Song. These are all players that have come into the World Cup injured, many of them completely missing the tournament. 
completely missing the tournament. And so it's unfortunate for a lot of these players that have spent a lot of their time preparing physically, mentally, training to be in the World Cup, to play in the World Cup, especially for somebody like Karim Benzema, who hasn't been playing with France until recently because of his phenomenal form. Hence, he won the Ballon d'Or just last month. And for players like him, it's a big disappointment to miss out on the World Cup because of an injury, which probably if the World Cup was in the summer, again, we wouldn't be having these storylines. So the timing for players and the leagues is off. It's not great. Not great. So those are all the different talking points coming into the tournament. And, uh, you know, obviously just on those injured players, let's hope that they recuperate quickly. And it's a shame that they have to miss the World Cup because of FIFA's decision to host a tournament in a country which they actually thought one could be played in the summer, but then they had to move it over to the winter. Uh, and clearly, you know, they were not thinking of the potential side effects of that when you have a lot of players, big players, very important. These are these are not, you know, you know, average player. These are top players in the world. Sadio Mane, Pogba, N'Golo Kante. I mean, France got hit very hard. When you have guys like Paul Pogba and N'Golo Kante out, that's a pretty big deal. Um, and then obviously Karim Benzema as well for France. Sadio Mane out for Senegal. Sir Luis Gaia out for Spain. Human Song out for South Korea. And many other players. These are not the only. Many other players as well have suffered the same fate. So let's hope that they recuperate. But yeah, those are all my thoughts on all the pregame buildup. Now let's get into the fun part. I know it's been a long episode, but let's get into the predictions that I made for this tournament. And I'm going to give you my thoughts on the favorites, dark horses, all of that. So who do I think of the favorites? To me, there's three clear ones. And I think one of them is a bit controversial because a lot of them have been saying they think that it's, they're going to be underwhelming, a bit of a flop. Based on the first game, I can see why people would think that. But again, long tournament, still a long way to go. My favorites for the World Cup are Brazil, Argentina, and Belgium. To me, those three stand out. For me, Brazil, always a favorite, but this year, even more, really the favorite based on the depth that they have in that team. Every single position is covered. And when you have players like Vinicius Jr., Casemiro, Thiago Silva, Gabriel Jesus, Neymar, Richarlison, I mean, Brazil has, to me, the most complete squad in this World Cup, and they are the favorites, in my opinion. Then the other two favorites, Argentina and Belgium, they'd be second and third for me. Argentina, coming into the World Cup, 36 games unbeaten. They won the Copa America last year, beating Brazil. It's important to note, they beat Brazil to win the Copa America, which is the continental, the major continental trophy for South America. And then my third would be Belgium. The quality of players they have on that team. Lukaku, who hopefully can play in the World Cup very soon. Hopefully he's not out too long. I don't know how long he's out for. But then you also have players like Kevin De Bruyne, and you have 
Uh, also, Yannick Carrasco, who's been one of the bright stars, one of the few lights, one of the few bright shining stars for Atletico Madrid this season in Spain, in La Liga. And of course, Thibaut Courtois, who for me is the best goalkeeper in the world, not just because he plays for Real Madrid, but because he's proven that. And most people agree with that. Hence, he won the best goalkeeper award. He won the Yashin Trophy at the Ballon d'Or Awards for being the world's best goalkeeper. So, strong arguments for Belgium as well. Dark horses? For me, I'd say there's uh, four of them. Four pretty strong ones. I'd say, And I know people are like, France is not one of your favorites? Well, for me, France is a dark horse. They have a good team. They have actually, you could say they have a great team. But do they have the team that they had four years ago that went on the world to world win the World Cup? That is debatable. And when there's doubt, I I don't think you can put them as favorites, especially. And I think the biggest reason uh, for this is the fact that France has a lot of big injuries coming into this tournament. Not having Karim Benzema is a big deal, and many other players like Conte and Pogba. Not having Christopher and Kunku. That's a big deal. The RB Leipzig striker. Um, he is also a big miss for France. But obviously, I think they have enough quality on the pitch to, again, defend their World Cup pretty well and, and make a deep run. They should get out of their group. They really should. They should. They should have enough to get out of their group. I don't think the curse is going to happen again. Based on what I've seen so far this tournament, what France did when they played Australia, where they won 4-1, and coming into the tournament, I didn't think that the curse was going to happen. And right now, it seems like that is the correct statement. Other dark horses. Portugal, they have Ronaldo, Bernardo Silva. Uh, they have uh, players like Joao Felix, who's been fantastic whenever he plays. He hasn't played much for Atletico Madrid because Diego Simeone there does not, for some reason, see a reason to play him. But he's... He's, he's been great. Had another great game the other day for Portugal in the first game. Uh, Rafael Leal. Um, you have experience in guys like Pepe defending. So I think Portugal have a very solid team. Fernando Santos, a very solid coach. Portugal won the Nations League, won the Euros. And then I would say Spain. I think they're a good dark horse pick as well. Great young talent. Great ability to hold the ball. You have guys like Pedri. Uh, you have guys like uh, Gavi. Obviously, the experience in there with Sergio Busquets. Now, I wish that there was more of that. I wish Ramos was playing. I wish Canales, Sergio Canales was playing. For me, Borja Iglesias, who's been having a terrific season for Real Betis in La Liga, was playing. But again, these are decisions the managers make, not me. Um, and, you know, I understand and I certainly agree that Spain squad could be better, and I think that there were other options that Luis Enrique should have picked. But Spain, definitely, you know, a good team, and after their solid performance in the Euros last year, you know, I'm hoping that we can make a deep run, if not win it. Uh, they had a very good performance in the Euros last year, I think shocked a lot of people. Um, but I think that they have some things going for them, even though form entering the World Cup has not been great. Same with France, has not been great. But again, you have quality players, you have players that can make a difference. We'll see what happens. And then I think the Dutch. And the Netherlands missed out on the last World Cup. They missed out on their last World Cup. 
They did not qualify for Russia in 2018. But they are back with a bang. They made the tournament. And they're a pretty solid team. Bengal has gotten a good core of players. You got guys like Memphis Depay, Virgil van Dijk in the middle of the park. Players like Frankie de Jong, who's one of the rising young stars of the game. For Barcelona and for the Dutch. So I think the Dutch can certainly surprise a few people. I don't know if they're going to win it. But I think the Dutch are a team to watch out for. Now, what are my predictions for this tournament? Who do I actually think could win, is going to win? What did I predict? So this is my bracket that I'm sharing with you for my pre-tournament uh, my pre-tournament prediction. So in Group A, and this is, uh, I filled out the bracket obviously just a few days before the tournament, before they close. In Group A, I have the Netherlands and Senegal going through first and second, Qatar third, and Ecuador fourth. Netherlands first, Senegal going through second. They won the African Cup of Nations, which is the continental trophy there, the major continental trophy there. I think they have a very good team, even though they're missing Mane. They have guys like Koulibaly on that team. Good experience, physical. They're a very competitive team. So I think they can definitely make it out of the group. Qatar, I put them to finish third just because they're the host nation. I feel like that would give them a bump. But clearly that hasn't been the case after the first two games of the group stage. Actually, uh, right now as I'm recording this, they are the first team to be eliminated from the tournament. And Ecuador finishing fourth. I know Eder Valencia has been the storyline for them this World Cup so far. They've been doing well. He's been playing great. He's gotten all their goals. I just didn't think that they'd have a strong enough unit to really compete team-wise with everyone else. But clearly, they're putting up a fight. And we'll get into that in just a few minutes. Group B. I have England finishing first. The USA going through in second place. And Wales and Iran finishing third and fourth. I think that England have the quality players and a strong enough team to finish first, though they haven't been coming into the tournament in great form. They have not been coming in in great form. They were awful in the UEFA Nations League. Hungary beating England 4-0. Gareth Southgate under a lot of scrutiny for the teams that he picks, the rosters he picks, the players he does not include, for his style of play. But I think England, yes, they got to the major tournament in the Euros. They, uh, in the Euros, excuse me, they got to the final major tournament in the European Championship. Lost against Italy on penalties. I think they're going to have enough quality to get out of the group in first. Um, and after the game today, they're still in first place. So that prediction still right now is upholding. And then the U.S., the young squad, you have Captain America, in Christian Pulisic and you have other players such as Weston McKinney, DeAndre Yedlin, um, Walker Zimmerman. These are all very important players, good players that are part of the backbone of this team. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, and I, I, I said it previously before the tournament, these are guys that are going to need to step up and perform if the U.S. is going to, do good in this World Cup. Pulisic was not great in the first game. It was great today. So, again, that, that's good news for the U.S. I have the U.S. finishing 
second. And then Wales and Iran finishing third and fourth in that group. In Group C, Argentina, for obvious reasons. They have Messi, Messi's last World Cup. Storylines behind that. Argentina, one of the favorites to win the tournament, not the favorites, along with Brazil. Uh, Poland finishing second in that group with Lewandowski. I think that just the fact that he's been on fire in La Liga could benefit Poland. Mexico finishing third, Saudi Arabia finishing fourth. In Group D, Denmark upsetting the apple cart and finishing first. That is what I predicted. I thought France would have enough to get through the group, but the form that they've been in, the fact that they've been lacking quality, the fact that they have a lot of injured players, I feel like could ultimately could ultimately affect the outcome of this group. And Denmark, underrated side. A very good team. They're well-coached. They're a very cohesive unit. And they beat France in the Nations League. Uh, let, let's remember that. They beat France in the Nations League. So, I think Denmark and... France go through in Group D, Australia finishing third, Tunisia finishing fourth. Group E, yes, I am a Spain, I'm a Spanish native, fan of Spain, always root for Spain. Uh, but I did predict Germany to go through first in this group. And that was because I thought Germany, one, had more experience on their team. Guys like Thomas Müller, Rudiger, Tony Rudiger, Manuel Neuer. Mario Götze. Uh, they had good young talent, and they had, for me, for me, at least before the tournament, I thought that Germany had more firepower. Spain's biggest problem has been the lack of scoring ability coming into the World Cup. Look at Spain's previous results. Very close. Not a lot of goals. And Spain doesn't really have a pure number nine. And I think there's a bit of an experience. And so that's why I thought that Germany would finish first and Spain would go through as second place finishers in Group E. Japan finishing third because they do have a decent team. And Costa Rica, I mean, the result the other day against Spain confirmed it. But um, coming into this tournament, this was not the Costa Rica of years ago that shocked the world in Brazil when they finished first in a group that had Uruguay, Italy, and England in it. This is not that Costa Rica. So Germany and Spain go through. In Group E, Group F, I have Belgium and Croatia going through first and second. Belgium, to me, one of the favorites. I don't know why a lot of people think they're going to be underwhelming. Yes, their first game was not great, but I think they have quality players. They finished third in the last World Cup. I don't see why they can't do it again. Uh, Croatia finishing second. They're an aging team, but they should have the quality to go through. Guys like Luka Modric, um, who have been there and captaining this team for a long time. Tadic as well. Um, I believe Tadic plays for Croatia. I'll just go ahead and look up their roster. I want to make sure I don't incorrectly uh, state which players are on which on which team. But I think that Croatia has good enough quality. Again, let's remember they were the World Cup finalists. The beaten World Cup finalists, second place in Russia, the 2018 World Cup in Russia. And so I think that they have good enough team to make it through this group. Morocco finishing third, Canada finishing fourth. I'm sorry, Canada. 
I just don't see how you get through. I, I didn't. Now, based on their performance the other day, which we'll talk about, they could get through. They, 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 it looks like they're going to put up a fight. So we'll see what happens. Um, and uh, the other groups, Group G, uh, and just to reiterate, Group F, Belgium first, Croatia second, Morocco third, Canada fourth. Group G, Brazil, I have them going in first. I have them first. Obviously, they're the favorites. Uh, and I think Serbia, who are an under another one of these teams that no, you know nobody's nobody's talking about. Serbia have a good team. They have a very good team. They've proven that their qualifying record is very solid. They have a strong, good team. Physical, they're able to battle. Very competitive, able to stay in games. So I have them going through over Switzerland. I know Switzerland's usually a pretty good team. I just don't have the sensation that Switzerland have enough quality or depth to really get through that group. So Brazil first, Serbia second, Switzerland third, and Cameroon, the African nation. I'm sorry, Cameroon, um, but you're finishing in fourth. <laughs> that that was uh, my prediction for Group G prior to the tournament. Uh, and actually, that is my mistake. Tadic is not on Croatia. I know I said it earlier, so I reiterate that. Um, Luka Modric, Ivan Perisic, uh, Lovren, Kovacic, Brozovic, Miroslav Orsic, who's been a key man for Dinamo Zagreb, scored the goal that beat Chelsea in the Champions League. So they have good players, Croatia. Again, I just wanted to correct that after um, incorrectly stating that about uh, about Tadic. Yeah, because Tadic is actually plays for Serbia. He is their lead man. So I was just confusing there between confusing myself there between Croatia and Serbia. Dusan Tadic uh, is one of the main strikers for. Serbia, hence one of the reasons I think they'll go through in Group G with Brazil. Group H, Portugal first. Cristiano Ronaldo, his last World Cup probably. Can they make a run? I think they have players to do it. They have Bruno Fernandes. They have Pepe in the, as, the, as the experienced center back. Uh, you have Rafael Leao, Joao Felix. So Portugal has a very solid team. Very good team. Uruguay, I think they have a very solid team. You could put Portugal or Uruguay either or going in first or second. I think it's pretty close. I think that's the game that's going to decide the group ultimately. But I have Uruguay going in through second. Uh, Fede Valverde, he's going to be a player to watch. Fede Valverde has been absolutely, I mean, just completely destroying everybody he plays against. This guy is scoring goals for fun as a midfielder. And he plays his role so well. He has been on some form for Real Madrid this season. And I think that is going to carry over into his performances for Uruguay in this World Cup. And it showed. I think he had a great game in that first game. I, I'm not going to say it was his best game ever, but I think he had a very solid game in that first game for Uruguay. So Portugal and Uruguay going through. Uh, Korea in third, missing Sun. I think that's a huge factor. And Ghana finishing fourth in that group. So those are my group stage predictions that I made. 
And then just to run you through the knockouts quickly, I have the Netherlands beating the United States. I think that's a toss-up, but I think the Netherlands quality would take them through in that uh, hypothetical round of 16 matchup. These are all round of 16 matchups. Then I have Argentina and France. I think Argentina go through. I do think Argentina go through. I think that uh, France, just with their injuries, the 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 fact that they have not been on a great run going into this tournament, the fact that Argentina has been very solid going into this tournament, uh, also the revenge factor. This was the same matchup as in Russia, the World Cup in 2018. Russia, in that World Cup, Argentina and France faced each other in the round of 16, and it was France that won that game 4-3 in a very entertaining thriller, probably the best game of the tournament, not one of the best games of the 2018 FIFA World Cup. Here, I have Argentina going through, and they would face the Netherlands in the quarterfinal. Germany, Croatia, I have Germany going through. I just think they have enough quality to beat Croatia, which is an aging side. Brazil beating Uruguay. I have England beating Senegal. I have Denmark beating Poland. I think that as a unit, they are better than Poland, even though Poland has Lewandowski on their team. I think Denmark, team-wise, as a group, are a better team than Poland. Uh, I have Belgium and Spain, and as much as I hate to say it, if that happened, I think Belgium would beat Spain. I do. I just think that there's, I, I don't see enough quality on Spain's team, and Belgium has experience. And when you have a guy like Thibaut Courtois net for Belgium, who has been the best goalkeeper in the world for a very long time, and uh, the fact that uh, Belgium just seemed to find a way to go deep, certainly recently in these tournaments, semifinalists. In Russia, quarterfinalists in the European Championships. Um, so, I think that Belgium would upset, not upset the apple cart, but I think they beat Spain. I wouldn't say it was easy. I, I would not say it's easy. I think Spain would put up a good fight. But I think that La Roja would come up a little bit short in that match. So, Belgium going through, and they would play Portugal, as I have Portugal beating Serbia in the final round of 16 matchups. Then the quarterfinals, it would be the Netherlands versus Argentina, based on my predictions. I think Argentina goes through. I have Germany and Brazil. I think Brazil goes through, getting revenge on the 7-1 thrashing that Germany gave them in the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. Hence, Germany went on to win that edition of the World Cup in Brazil after beating Brazil in the semifinals 7-1. So I think Brazil gets their revenge. They beat them there. And then I think Denmark... I think this is one where it would surprise a lot of people. A lot of people have not been talking about Denmark. I have Denmark beating England. I do. I think Denmark has a very good team. I think England, their style of play, the fact that they have not been coming into the World Cup on great results, also the fact that I think England, maybe with the U.S. being the exception, based on the run that I have them going and the teams that are, they would be playing in this tournament, I think England, Denmark would probably be, along with the U.S., their toughest match. Denmark has a good team, and I could see that happening. So I have Denmark beating England in the quarterfinals, and finally Belgium beating Portugal. So no World Cup for Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm sorry, CR7, but 
I, again, I, I just, for the reasons I stated previously, I just think Belgium's quality in terms of players and, and their roster, they have a very solid team as well as Portugal. Portugal could be Belgium if that happens, but if I had to pick my money on it, I'd say Belgium also just because of the fact Belgium's been there at this stage in the World Cup. As again, as I said with Belgium just a few minutes ago, Belgium got to the semifinals of the World Cup in Russia. I think they can do it again. And then the semifinals, it would be Argentina-Brazil, and that is a tasty matchup for all soccer fans. Argentina-Brazil would be a repeat of the Copa America final of last year where Argentina beat Brazil in the Maracanã in Rio de Janeiro by a goal to nil. And Brazil, I think that revenge factor would be the difference because I see these two teams very evenly matched, very good squads, great players. Argentina, you have Lautaro Martinez, Lionel Messi. They look like a very good cohesive unit. Paulo Dybala. I think it's a very good team. Um, Rodrigo de Paul. I think that Argentina has some very good players and a very solid team. Again, 36 games unbeaten coming into the World Cup. They have not lost a game in over a year and a half. And Brazil, with the exception of that game that they lost against Argentina, same thing. They're coming into the World Cup unbeaten, on great form, and Brazil has the ability to score goals. Man, do they have attacking prowess. Vinicius Jr., Richarlison, Neymar, Gabriel Jesus, who's been great for Arsenal in the Premier League. Hence, Arsenal are leading the Premier League right now at the World Cup break. So I think Argentina and Brazil, phenomenal game that would be if that happens in the latter stage of the tournament. I think Brazil just edges Argentina and goes through to the World Cup final. And then the other match, yeah, I'm sorry, Denmark, but I don't see you beating Belgium either. Uh, again, Denmark, that would be a phenomenal run. I have them making it to the semifinals. Uh, but I think that Belgium would just outclass Denmark with the players that they have. Again, Kevin De Bruyne, uh, Lukaku, if he's fit and can play. Um, and he's been great for Inter since his return to Serie A in Italy. Uh, and uh, again, Tibor Courtois in net. It's hard to bet against a team that has Tibor Courtois, Kevin De Bruyne, uh, Lukaku, uh, Dries Martens, and uh, Yannick Carrasco. I mean, it's a pretty darn good... Oh, and let's not forget Aiden Hazard, the Hazard brothers. Let's not forget about them. Uh, so, again, Belgium beating Denmark. And the World Cup final in the Lusail Stadium... On the 18th of December is Brazil, Belgium, and Brazil will win the 2022 FIFA World Cup. That is my prediction. Brazil is going to win. They are the best squad in this tournament, I think. It's been a while. It's been 20 years. They've been close on a number of occasions, reaching the latter stages of the tournament in all of the editions since they won it since they last won it in 2002. And I think now they have the team to do it. And I see them winning the World Cup. Beating Belgium. And I think what will be a very good game. But I just think the attacking prowess. 
and the goal-scoring ability, Brazil just finds a way. I think that that will take them over the edge, and they will win the 2022 FIFA World Cup. So those are my World Cup predictions. Those are my predictions prior to the tournament. And now we're going to talk about keys to the World Cup. And first, we're going to just take a moment on the two teams that certainly have an interest in me. I think for Spain, what are the keys for Spain? Uh, well, Spain has great young players. Uh, Gavi, Pedri, Dani Olmo up front, Alvaro Morata up front as well. Um, probably going to be the main striker for Spain. You have Emmerich Laporte, Balde, a very young team for Spain. Unai Simón, who's been a great goalkeeper for Spain whenever he's performed. And uh, I thought he was great. Salvaged that one error he had in the Euros, obviously, against Croatia. Um, but I thought he's been great for Spain. Unai Simón. And Spain's youth and energy and the idea that Spain have of playing reminiscent of the glorious team that we had back in the early 2010s where we won the 2008 Euros, the 2010 World Cup, and the 2012 Euros. We are the only nation to ever three-peat in three international tournaments. We're the only team, the only nation to ever win three consecutive major international tournaments. And the style that I see that we're trying to play is great. It's reminiscent of that. But I think we lack firepower. Morata's not there. Not sure Daniel Mo is a guy you can count on. Where are the goals going to come from? And you look at Spain's results coming into this World Cup. A lot of them are 2-1s, 1-0s. They barely squeaked by in the Nations Leagues against Portugal. 1-0. They're into the Final Four again. So I think Spain have quality. We have great players. And we have an idea of how we want to play. But I think that we're lacking firepower. I also think that we're shaking we're shaky defensively. Again, that Spain team that won it all in 2010. If you need proof that defense wins championships, just look at Spain's 2010 run to win the World Cup. They allowed two goals that entire tournament. And zero goals conceded in the entire knockout phase of the tournament. Spain considered zero goals in the entire knockout phase of the 2010 World Cup, ultimately going on to win it. So that just tells you, you need to have solid defending if you want to go far in this tournament. It's not just about the offense. You need to have defending. Again, that's another reason I have Brazil winning. Thiago Silva at the back. Goalkeepers for Brazil. You have Ederson and Allison. Both in the Premier League, two of the best goalkeepers in the world. I think they are phenomenal up front, in the middle of the park, and at the back. Hence why I have Brazil winning the tournament in my prediction. And so I think that's something that Spain does not have. I don't think we are very secure defensively. Jordi Alba, great. Um, uh, he's a great left back. 
for Spain. I believe he's a left back. If not, he's a right back. Um, but he is a full back for Spain. Jordi Alba, years of experience. But he is aging. And at the back with guys like Emmerich Laporte and Balde. You know, I, I have my doubts defensively of how Spain are going to be in this tournament, especially when they play teams that can score goals and that have firepower. Can Spain match that? I think deep in the tournament, they're going to come up short if they make it deep in the tournament. My prediction, I don't think they're going to make it deep, but we'll see what happens. Uh, also, Luis Enrique, Spain's coach, <laughs> Spain's coach, uh, decided to start streaming during the tournament, which, okay, I think there's a plus and a negative. The plus, Luis Enrique is going to be closer with the fans. He's going to be able to give daily updates about players, about training sessions, about expectations, all the thoughts that he and the team are discussing and thinking about. So it's going to keep fans up to date daily with the team. So I think that that's a good thing, right? It's transparency, and fans are going to be able to find out directly from the coach what is going on in the Spanish camp? On the downside, while you're streaming, Luis Enrique, you are missing out on important games which may have potential future rivals in the latter stages of the tournament. And I very much hope that he is going back and watching the highlights of some of these games of teams that we could potentially play against later in the tournament. Uh, so let's hope that he is. Because if he's not, well, I guess we will see the results of that when we play those big guns if we do play them at a latter stage in the tournament. What is a good tournament for Spain? For me, if Spain makes the quarterfinal, I think it's a great tournament, realistically. I think if Spain makes the quarterfinals, anything after that would just be A+. plus. I, I really do. Um, and based on the teams we would have to play against to get to the semifinals, I mean, in my bracket, if Spain beats Belgium, they would play Portugal based on my predictions, uh, and they would have to play Denmark. And obviously the final, they would have to play Brazil. These are not easy teams to play against. I don't think it's impossible. That is if Spain finishes second. Ironically, based on my predictions, if Spain finishes first in their group, they would probably have a tougher road. You'd have to deal with either the Dutch, Argentina, Germany, Brazil. If Spain finished second, based on my prediction, they would face either Denmark, Portugal, maybe England, Senegal, depending on who gets through. So... In theory, in my bracket, they are on the easier side. Uh, but I think we need to keep it realistic. I think if Spain gets to the quarterfinals, it is a successful tournament for the Spanish. Now, for the United States, this is a fun U.S. team to watch. Youth, feisty. They have a good spirit about them. They have some quality players like Christian Pulisic, DeAndre Yedlin. Matt Turner, their goalkeeper, who what a performance he's put on for the U.S. in many matches, especially in this World Cup, especially today against England. 
And uh, also you have guys like DeAndre Yedlin, Walker Zimmerman. Uh, let's also mention Weston McKinney. So a lot of guys. Uh, Munsa. Uh, and also... What's his name? Um, I know his last name is Way, but I want to make sure that I get his full name correct for uh, the uh, starting attacker for the U.S. team. I think his name. I don't want to get. I don't want to get it wrong. Tim Weah, that's it. Yeah, I was thinking Thomas Tim, Tim Weah. I wanted to make sure I get that correct. So Tim Weah, who is one of the starting, um, who's one of the starting forwards for Spain, excuse for Spain for the U.S. in this World Cup. So a lot of young, fiery players, good players, technical ability, but yes, the inexperience factor is there. You know, with the with the exception of one player. Actually, I'm not sure who that is. Um, I, I think also Serginho Des mentioned him. Um, Tyler Tyler Adams. Um, but with the exception of one player on the U.S. roster, none of these guys have ever played in a FIFA World Cup. So I think that is going to influence uh, what happens. Uh, I think that for the first time in eight years... There's an expected level of performance for this U.S. team. Everyone's expecting for them to at least put in solid performances and make their country proud. The U.S. obviously did not qualify for Russia in 2018 after losing to Trinidad and Tobago in the final uh, qualifying game for that tournament. Um, and the U.S. crashed out, didn't even make the World Cup. They crashed out in qualifying, uh, and that was Probably, and we can say, the biggest failure of U.S. soccer in its history to not qualify for the 2018 FIFA World Cup. Now, the U.S. is going to have to rely on these stars. Pulisic, McKinney, Yedlin, etc. These guys are going to have to show up if the U.S. wants to have an impact in their group and the tournament. There's no denying that. If they do not show up and do not put in solid performances or lackluster or average performances, the U.S. is going to struggle to get out of their group. The U.S. will struggle to get out of their group. That's what I predicted, and we've pretty much seen that in the first two games of the group stage, where the U.S. has drawn both games. Today, they didn't get the goals. The other day, they didn't get the goals, but also against Wales in the first match. Uh, you know, your Pulisic's, your McKinney's, they did not have great games. It was not... Very good game. Actually, they were very poor games for a lot of players. Certainly in the second half. I think the first half, the game was very good against Wales. We'll talk about that in a second. And I think that the expectation for this team has to be that if the United States gets out of the group, it is a successful tournament. It's not an easy group. England, the U.S., Iran, and Wales. It's probably along with the Spain group, the two toughest groups to predict of this tournament. Maybe Group A with Ecuador, but 
for me, the U.S.'s and Spain's groups are the two groups of death. The probably the hardest groups to predict, where you have a lot of teams where you could potentially see upsetting the apple cart, even playing field, if the games are competitive enough. So it's not an easy group to get out of. I think the U.S. will get out of it, hence my prediction. But let's keep it realistic. Let's keep our feet on the ground. I think if the U.S. gets out of the group, it's a very good World Cup for the United States. And uh, I think that also the U.S., it's going to be great experience for the future. This is a core group of guys that we should expect to see in future tournaments, in future World Cups, future Gold Cups. The United States, let's remember, they beat Mexico to win the Gold Cup last year, which was its, which was U.S. soccer's first major trophy, and that was great for the U.S. national team. Uh, but let's remember, you know, this is the World Cup, and they're going to get a lot of experience. They're going to get to know what it feels like to play in a World Cup, the pressure that comes with it, the expectations, the criticism, which is going to be heavy, especially if the U.S. falls out of the group stage. So they're going to learn a lot, that's for sure. We should expect this core of players to remain for a while and be the future of U.S. soccer, the current and future of U.S. soccer. So I think that um, the U.S. has a good team. They can get out of their group if they play well enough, if their guys show up, if they're able to cohesively keep it organized, especially in the midfield and at the back, and rely on key players to show up. If they can do that, the U.S. will get out of the group. It's that simple. That was my prediction before the tournament. It stays the same. We're going to see it on next Tuesday against Iran, where the U.S. has to win if they want to progress to the knockout stage. So here is former U.S. men's national team player Alexi Lalas, who played for the United States in the 1990s, had over 90, World, uh, 90 international appearances Excuse me, for the United States, played in multiple World Cups for the U.S., I believe he played in multiple World Cups. I know he played in at least one. But here's Alexi Lalas's thoughts on what is important for the United States and what the realistic expectations of this tournament should be for U.S. fans. Here's Alexi Lalas on the U.S.'s chances at the World Cup. In 2018, so how is the team shaping up this year? There's only one person to ask. Former U.S. men's team legend and Fox Sports FIFA World Cup soccer analyst Alexi Lawless is in the house. And brusher of teeth. That's uh, absolutely right. And raising two children that also are brushing their that teeth. Is, that so is a big deal. That is percentage that does. a parenting success okay. right there. Do your kids play soccer? Uh, they do. Yeah. They, they do. So tell me about the kids playing soccer for the U.S. men's national team because we have some young ones, but but how is that coalescing? How is that shaping up in terms of... Look, I think that this is going to make a lot of people excited. I think it's going to make a lot of Americans proud when they watch this team. It is a young, inexperienced team. It will be the youngest team at the World Cup. Mm. You mentioned not qualifying for the last World Cup. In my estimation, the biggest failure in U.S. soccer history... Having said that, maybe a step back in order to go two steps forward, and we are coming back to this World Cup in Qatar with high hopes, a lot of really interesting young players that are playing in some of the great leagues and some of the great teams in the world. And, you know, a World Cup is 
it's a, it's an opportunity to win hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity for the sport. It's an opportunity for the players and for this team right now. While they're young, they got a beautiful young type of swagger about them. Yes. And I think they recognize the opportunity and the responsibility of making us believe in this team and making us proud. And let's be honest. I think uniting us, and in a, a moment and an age, and certainly in a, in a world and a country where very few things out there bring us together, I, and, and I, people, I hope that this happens. People felt that. I mean, we're excited yeah. to watch in 2018, but people really felt that uh, for the first time since I've been aware of World Cup play. You know, I was obviously very much into it when you were here playing in 1994. Yeah. I think we have some pictures. Back in the previous century. Yes. Yeah, the 1900s. There's, there it was. There's the a lot of hair ago. A lot of hair. Yeah. A lot of hot oil treatments. <laughs> scrunchies. <laughs> oh, God. Boy, never has a beard. so much time there and effort in maintenance. Been done yes. to look like you just rolled out of a bed. So oh my goodness. how does it make you guy. feel when one Googles top ginger soccer players? <laughs> you're at number nine out of ten. Look, I've cleaned up on the outside. I mean, we do this TV thing, and you know, there's a level of decorum and, and you know aesthetic that you kind of need to adhere to. Having said that, uh, well, I cleaned up on the outside. I'm still a mess on the inside. <laughs> Perfect. So. Okay, but that we need because we need that passion. Yes. We need that expertise. Yeah. Obviously, you bring all of that. So how important is uh, experience and age like how big of a factor is that is, is that something that the u.s men are missing because you have literal teenagers on the team? yeah i mean they're going to be very young and inexperienced and they're going to make mistakes but they also like i said bring this this beautiful swagger and this can beautiful arrogance i think they can finish okay they will uh, be under pressure and expectations look we have been to a world cup before so we're not going to break our you know, arms patting ourselves on the back of getting back to the World Cup. Yeah. We have been in a World Cup and been successful and gotten out of group play. Our group, Kennedy, okay, it's Group B. This is a 32-team tournament, eight different groups of four. Our group has England. Ooh, yeah. England. Black Friday. Wales. Ooh, Wales. Oh, yeah. And Iran. Okay, so. so we, can beat, we can beat Wales. We can beat Iran. We should expect to beat those teams. You take your chances against England, anything can happen. Okay. So there is Alexi Lawless on his thoughts for the U.S. men's national team in this World Cup. I pretty much agree with him on everything he said. Um, and uh, it's pretty much drawn out exactly as he said. Yeah. Now, obviously Wales, we should have beaten them, and he's absolutely right. That's really a game we should win. Take your chances against England. We did. We got a draw. Okay, move on. Now you got to beat Iran. You don't deserve to go through if you can't beat at least one of the teams in your group. And easily to win a game to go through, and that's what the U.S. is going to have to do. So the U.S. is a very interesting, inexperienced uh, team, but a lot of youth, a lot of feistiness, a lot of young swagger, as Alexi Lal said there on that Fox Business interview. And it should be, hopefully... A U.S. win on Tuesday. They beat Iran, go through. We can enjoy more of this team in the knockout stage of this tournament. Let's see how far the U.S. can get, and let's see what this tournament does in terms of building momentum uh, and expectations for the future. Because as I said earlier, this is a core team. This is the core of this team is something that we can expect to remain around for a while. Keys to the World Cup. What are my most important keys for the team that's going to win this World Cup, for the teams that are going to do well and go deep? 
in this World Cup into the knockout stages. For me, the most important, based on what I talked about earlier in terms of player injuries and um, you know key players missing out and key players needing to show up, is squad depth. I think the more depth you have on your team as you get further into the tournament is going to be a huge bonus. If you have a squad with depth, if not, if not in all positions, if in the majority of positions, you have enough depth to cover you when your starting 11 or your top players cannot perform or get injured, it's very important, especially for this World Cup. After what we've seen with so many players getting injured prior to the tournament, it's very important for teams to have squad depth. And I think Brazil has that. I think Spain somewhat has that. Argentina obviously has that. Um, I think teams like England have that, especially experience. Maybe guys that don't play full 90 minutes for England anymore, but again, we saw today Jordan Henderson coming off the bench for England today. I mean, when you could bring in guys like Jordan Henderson and Marcus Rashford off the bench, uh, th- those are pretty quality players. Those are pretty quality players that you're bringing off the bench. So what you're bringing off the bench is very important. How good is your squad depth? The team that goes on to win this tournament and teams that make it further on into the tournament, I'm very positive that you could point every single one of those teams and say, yeah, they have a lot of depth in their squad. That's why they're here. I think that's going to be a key role. Quality and individual brilliance. The quality of individual players will have to show up and they will have to provide game-winning or decisive moments in a game at times when their team is on the ropes, under pressure, not playing well. Players are going to have to step up. Pulisic is going to have to step up for the United States on Tuesday if they want to go through. If he plays like today, the U.S. will go through on Tuesday. If he plays like he did on Monday against Wales, salvage a few moments such as the assist and a few key moments in the game where, okay, he was pretty good. If he, But he, if in general he plays like he did against Wales, the U.S. is not going to have a great time against Iran. Uh, you're going to need your top guys like Neymar to show up for Brazil, Vinicius to show up for Brazil. You're going to need Casemiro to show up for Brazil. Uh, if you are Spain, you're going to need Busquets. You're going to need Alvaro Morata and Dani Olmo to be big up top and get you the goals. Um, if you are England, Bukayo Saka, you're going to need him to show up in this tournament. Harry Kane needs to be a role for England. If Argentina is going to you know, make that glorious run that a lot of people are predicting, Messi is going to have to put on performances. He's going to have to show up. He didn't the other day. They play tomorrow against Mexico. If they lose, they're out. And if it's Portugal, you need Ronaldo to show up. He did. He scored a penalty, won the penalty in the first game against Ghana. Portugal won that game. And his goal was decisive because they won that game 3-2 by just one goal. So uh, that was necessary. So all of your big guys are going to have to show up. The individual brilliance is going to need to be there when it matters most. And if players like those players that I just named can do that consistently and can do it in the latter stages of this tournament, you're going to have a chance to win this thing. Form and fitness 
teams need to be fit. You could tell the first game the U.S. played against Wales that they played brilliantly in the first half, and then the second half was underwhelming, to say the least. You could tell that physically they were not up to par in terms of fitness for a 90-minute game in that environment. Hence, Wales was much better in the second half. They made the tactical changes, started pushing numbers forward, overloading the U.S. in the midfield, getting balls out wide, passing and moving the ball around quicker. So fitness and being able to stay in a game, which is my next point, are very important. The form that a team is coming in, I think that's important. I don't think it's the biggest decisive factor, but I think it's something you have to look at, right? Which is what makes Argentina losing against Saudi Arabia the other day even more shocking. But I think form is something you have to keep in mind. I think when you're trying to make predictions, trying to see, okay, who's coming into the tournament in the right form. But not just looking at teams as a whole. You have to look at individual players as well. Which players are coming in great form? Which players are coming in not so great form? Which players are coming in you know, on a high? Which players are coming in on a low? And can they make an impact? So I think that is a deciding factor. Form and fitness, as I just mentioned, the ability to compete. You're going to have to get ugly wins in this tournament. You're going to have to stay in games when you're not playing well. You're going to have to compete. You may not be playing well. You may be under pressure. But do you have the ability to get one or two chances and take them? It doesn't, again, in the World Cup especially, in soccer in general, right, the key part of the pitch is the 16-yard box and who gets the goals. You win by scoring goals. Now, if you're not playing great, that doesn't mean you can't win. Is it less likely? Yeah. But that doesn't mean you can't win. The ability to compete, stay in a game, finding a way to win over a seven-game tournament. That's how many games a team would have to play to go to the World Cup Final right, and win, including the World Cup Final. It'd be a maximum of seven games. In those seven games, you're going to have times where you're under pressure, you're struggling, you're not playing well. But can you compete, stay in it, not capitulate, not collapse, and find a way to win games? Nick a goal here and there. Defend. Maybe you have to counterattack. Can you take your chances? And for me, the last key concept for this tournament is being able to win your opening game. Statistically, 84% of the time, winning teams in their opening game of the World Cup go on to the knockout stages. 84% of the time. So I don't think I can stress enough how important it is to win your opening game because if you do, you get three points right off in the bag and you can afford a slip-up in either the second or third game. Because if you win the second game, you're through. You can afford a slip-up in the third game. If you slip up in the second game after winning your first game, okay, we might have lost the second game, but we still have three points from that first game in the bag. So we're still in it. We still have a chance to go through. Not winning your first game just adds on to the pressure and makes it a lot more difficult to get through the group. Hence, just look at the United States. What happened with them? They drew their first game. They drew their second game. 
And now they have no exceptions. There's no room for error. They must beat Iran. A draw, they're out. A loss, they're out. So it just makes it easier for you to get through the group stage if you can win the first game of the tournament, your opening game of the tournament. So those are my keys to this World Cup. Those, I think, are the most important and pivotal concepts for whoever is going to win this thing. And now, before we go ahead and end this episode, um, I know it's been a long one. So for those of you listening in, I appreciate it um, very much. There's just uh, there's just so much to talk about, and we're going to talk about this World Cup as the uh, tournament advances. We're going to do more episodes on uh, the results and uh, the outcomes of games and the groups. After the group stage, there will be an episode on the group stage results and what to expect. But just to briefly go over the matches that have taken place so far, it is Friday, November 25th. It has been six match days of, I would say, very entertaining games. A lot of talking points. Some big upsets included. Some big upsets included. So, uh, the first game of the World Cup was Qatar versus Ecuador. Ecuador won that game last Sunday. Uh, that was Sunday, November 20th. And Ecuador won 2-0. Um, Qatar basically showed that they cannot compete at a top level in the World Cup. Um, they've had 12 years to prepare this team, and it was an absolute failure from the team to the actual performance, from the team performance to the actual fiasco with the fans. The fan fiasco of fans leaving at halftime and the stadium being at 30% capacity for almost the entire second half after 12 years of preparation in the opening game of the FIFA World Cup is an absolute embarrassment to FIFA, to Qatar, to the players, to soccer as a whole. I mean, the second half of that game, the stadium was almost empty. And you could just see it on the TV screen while watching the game. It was sad to see. Now, in terms of the game, Ecuador fully deserved the win. They were solid. They got the goals when they needed to. Eder Valencia made his mark. And it is clear that if Ecuador is going to put up a fight in Group A, which it looks like they will... And also after their result today against the Netherlands where they drew 1-1. They're very much in the running to get out of the group. So Ecuador. Very much uh, in the mix to get out of Group A. Qatar, as I stated earlier in the podcast, are the first team to be eliminated from this World Cup. They are the first host nation to be eliminated after just two group stage matches. So Qatar, all of that time. Preparing for the World Cup, and it really turned out to be an embarrassment for them. At least they scored today in their game against Senegal. At least they've scored a goal. Better than nothing. But I did expect Qatar to show a little more, being the host nation. Uh, England versus Iran. So the Monday matches, um, all very good. I'll mention all of them because they were all very good, entertaining games. England versus Iran. Um, I think the homeland issues going on in Iran right now with the uh, government, uh, with uh, obviously the Muslim extremists running that country, a lot of people, including many of their own citizens, unhappy. Hence, Iran not singing the national anthem. None of the players nor the coaching staff sang the national anthem 
at the England game uh, and the fans holding up banners protesting against the unfair treatment of women, especially women. That's been one of the biggest news stories recently. Uh, banners protesting against that in the stadium. I think that and the fact that in the first 10 minutes of the game, their starting goalkeeper got a concussion after a ball played into the box and he ran into his own player. I think one of his defenders it was. He ran into him and got a concussion and had to leave the game. So things not going well for Iran uh, just in terms of the current issues going on in their country and at the beginning of the game. That did not contribute uh, in any good way to their performance on Monday at all. Uh, And you could just see that they looked dejected and deflated in that performance. And I do feel sorry for them because it's not their fault about what's going on in their country. And let's just hope that that can uh, get turned around quickly and that people can have a decent and a better life in Iran. Uh, but in terms of England, they look brilliant. One six two, uh, they came out of their slump. Uh, definitely put their name in as serious contenders. They put their name in the conversation. Um, if there was ever any doubt, I didn't mention them as a dark horse or a favorite, and that was largely because of the you know, the issues going on with them prior to the tournament. They were relegated, relegated in the UEFA Nations League. Lost again. As I mentioned earlier, 4 nothing to Hungary in the Nations League. They have not won a game uh, in a while. And and they've only won, I think, one out of their last seven games, one of the last six games. Not, they have not been on a good run heading into this World Cup. And they've been struggling to find consistency and form. A lot of pressure on Southgate because of the way he plays, his tactics, the players he brings onto the team. Uh, and I do agree with a lot of that criticism. However, yes, Southgate has the facts. He has the record backing it up. He did take England to the semifinals of the year, uh, excuse me, to the final of the European Championship. They lost the tournament on penalties. Can happen. Uh, but I didn't think that they would be a giant player in this tournament just because of the form they were coming in and all the scrutiny with Southgate's position. Gareth Southgate, who is the England manager coach for them uh all of the questions surrounding him i thought that would negatively impact the team and uh well they clearly were not affected by any of that because that was an emphatic win against iran again 6-2 they played brilliantly and they scored six goals without their main striker harry kane getting involved in any of the goals so great news for england they clearly can score if Harry Kane does not show up. They have the ability to put the ball in the back of the net and big time if he doesn't show up. Uh, Senegal versus the Netherlands. That was a good game as well on Monday. On match day two, uh, the Netherlands winning that game two goals with two, two nothing, excuse me, with two goals late on. Frankie de Jong showed why he is a world-class player. I think he's just getting better and better. A brilliant cross. Um... And uh, the Netherlands winning that one to nothing. Senegal put in a valiant effort. They still have lots to play for. They're not out of the group. They won today against Qatar, meaning that they are very much in it to go through in Group A. So Group A is wide open between the Netherlands, Senegal, uh, and Ecuador. 
Uh, it could be any one of the any two of those three could go on. I think Netherlands probably goes through. Pretty sure, pretty securely that they're that they're gonna go through. Um, but that's a toss up between another between uh, Ecuador and Senegal. Ecuador with the edge now, uh, with four points. Senegal on three points after uh, Group A having played two match days. So the Netherlands won that game two nothing. And then the big game of that match day was the USA-Wales game. It felt like a defeat for the U.S. Um, how they played in the first half, they should have killed and knocked off Wales in that first half. They paid for it. A penalty by Walker Zimmerman. There was no need for him to go in through the back of Gareth Bale like that in the penalty box. The attacking player is facing away from the goal. Yes, he has possession, but you're the defender. You are in position. If he turns right, if he turns left, you follow him. You're allowed to put your body in the way, use contact. The only way Gareth Bale was going to turn around and get a shot is if he was able to somehow do that extremely quickly or basically put it through the legs of Walker Zimmerman and uh, somehow find a way to get a shot away and, and nutmeg him and somehow get a shot away. I mean, Gareth Bale was not going to do anything in that position. He was facing away from goal. Walker Zimmerman was in the right position. Just hold him up. Force him to play back. Somebody else can then pressure on to try and win the ball. I get that he was in the 16-yard box, but you don't go through the back of a defender in the 16-yard box in the World Cup. There's pretty much no argument as to why that shouldn't be a penalty. So I think that it was a clear penalty at first I didn't think it was because I thought he looked like from a certain angle he won the ball but if you look at other replays he barely got any contact on the ball it was pretty much a challenge through the back lunged into him to me that's a penalty Um, and I think most people would agree with that Um, Wales changed the system grew back into the game they played a lot better in the second half Wales were not good in the first half the US was all over him Again, the U.S. should have won that game because of how good they were in the first half. They could have killed that game off in the first half. The U.S. could have been 2-3 up in the first half, could have put on a few subs in the second half, take some key players off, give him rest, knock the game out. The 1-0 scoreline heading late into that game, more and more, especially after the save Matt Turner made, I don't know what minute it was. It must have been about the 65th, 70th minute of the game. A ridiculous save from point blank to keep the U.S. up one nothing, But you could sense that Wales were growing into the game and that they could make something happen. Indeed, they did. Gareth Bale gets the penalty. There was no chance Matt Turner was saving that top corner into the left top corner of Matt Turner's goal, and the game finishes 1-1. So at the end of the day, the England, the England result today never really mattered unless the U.S. beat England. That, that would have mattered. That would have changed how things were. But even before the game today, unless the U.S. got a win today against England, they were always going to have to beat Iran. So at the end of the day, for both teams, the Iran game was pivotal. Now, the good thing for the U.S. is that Wales is going to have to play England and try to beat England after losing to Iran. Wales lost to Iran. That's good for the United States. They're going to have to beat England if they want to go through and have any chance of going through. And the U.S. now just solely depends on themselves. 
the U.S. has their future, right, their fate in their own hands. The U.S. beats Iran. The U.S. is through to the knockout stage of the World Cup. Then we go on to match day three, where we had some pretty good games. We had some pretty good games. The new story of the day was Argentina. Saudi Arabia uh, really took it to Argentina. Saudi Arabia beating Argentina two goals to one. And Saudi Arabia, the day after, was declared a national holiday. That is how big of a deal it was. Saudi Arabia are not even in the top 50 in the FIFA world rankings. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary, the upset that this was. Argentina coming into the World Cup, 36 games unbeaten, and coming off of winning the Copa America against Brazil a year ago. So, how is this going to affect Argentina? They seemed very off in that game. Messi scored a penalty. That was about it. He was pretty much useless throughout the game. Not just him, but everyone else on that team. It just looked like Argentina, all of a sudden, for whatever reason, they couldn't string passes together. They couldn't find a good system of play to break through the very rugged, well-organized Saudi Arabian defense. And, um, you know, Messi's post-match interview was certainly very telling as uh, he stated that it was very disappointing uh, and uh, that this is definitely going to affect them and the outcome of the tournament. Uh, And it's a big shock to them. Uh, I, I highly recommend, if you can, go watch Messi's interview after the Saudi Arabia game. Very interesting what he says there. But Argentina, they still have to play against Mexico tomorrow. They still have a third group game. They cannot lose against Mexico in their second match of the group stage, or they are out. If they lose, they are out. It's that simple. If they get a draw or a win, they're still mathematically with a chance uh, to advance to the knockout stages. Obviously, if they win, their chances greatly increase. So, Saudi Arabia beating Argentina, that is a shocker. Really, really big, huge upset. To me, I can't think of a bigger upset than that. I think that's probably the biggest upset in World Cup history. I really cannot think of a bigger upset than that. Again, Saudi Arabia, not even the top 50 in the FIFA World Rankings. It's pretty extraordinary. But that's the beauty of this tournament. That's the beauty of this game. That is why you love the World Cup. Uh, Denmark and Tunisia was honestly not a great game. They were the first of the nil-nils. This tournament, a lot of nil-nils. Russia in 2018, there was only one nothing nothing in the entire 64-game tournament. How many games? Is it 62? Six, I think it's 62. Right? How many games are in the World Cup? It's 60-something. It's like 62 games, the full tournament, 63, 64 games. Well, the entire tournament, there was only one game that ended in a nothing-nothing. We've only been in barely a week, not even a week. And we've already had a bunch of nothing-nothing. A bunch of them. And Denmark-Tunisia was the first of those. Mexico-Poland was an interesting nothing-nothing. 
because th- that man, <laughs> Ochoa, the goalkeeper for Mexico, every time he plays in a World Cup, he is unstoppable. I mean, this guy just shows up every time Mexico are in the World Cup. He's a huge part of their success every World Cup. He's one of their top players. He saved a penalty in the game against Poland. He saved a penalty from Robert Lewandowski. Robert Lewandowski, who's on fire for Barcelona in La Liga. He's the top scorer in Spain as of right now. And a pure number nine and a goal-scoring machine. To save a penalty from him in the World Cup is simply extraordinary. Hats off to Ochoa. Every World Cup, he never ceases to impress. He just plays at such a high level in the World Cup and I think is a big reason Mexico could end up going through in that group. If he performs like that, teams are going to have a hard time scoring against him. Uh, Chesney also had some great saves, we must say, for Poland. There was a shot that was deflected halfway to the goal. And he was able to quickly react and save it. It was a brilliant save by Chesney in that game. So goalkeepers, really the headlines in that Mexico versus Poland, nothing, nothing uh, draw. And then you have France, the defending World Cup champions, where everyone thought they would struggle, including myself, because of the injuries, because of the form they've been in, the Nations League not going well, but man, did they turn it on in that game. Chamonix looked brilliant in the midfield for France. Um, They also had Olivier Giroud on peak goal-scoring form. He scored, I believe, twice in that game. Looked brilliant. Had uh, Had an overhead kick that almost went in. That would have been ridiculous had he scored that. So Olivier Giroud looked great. Mbappe looked great. I know he got at least one assist in that game. Uh, And France just looked like the team that they looked like themselves. France looked like the team that went on to win this tournament four years ago. If they play like that, even though they have all the all the talking points surrounding them with injuries, with the form that they've been coming in, they haven't been playing great, they, the lack of consistency. If they can play like they did against Australia in that first game where they won 4-1, they could absolutely make a very deep run and potentially retain their trophy. So France wins 4-1 against Australia. Then the other big upset, I think, has to be the Germany-Japan game. Japan beating Germany by two goals to one um, in the first game in that group, and that is Spain's group, uh, and that is Group E that Spain are in. Uh, And... Germany losing to Japan by two goals to one in a game that Germany were not great and certainly not fire. I wouldn't say they were awful, but they were not firing on all cylinders. Germany looked flat. Um, Not as surprising as a result as the Argentina game because Japan have some decent players. They have players that have played in Europe uh, and that play in some leagues in Europe. And Japan have consistently been in the World Cup and have made it through the knockout stages in many tournaments. Uh, so, you know, I always thought Japan would be, I wouldn't say the most difficult rival, but 
I didn't I didn't think Japan would be a walk in the park. The fact that they're in Spain's group. And uh, it showed. And they took the game to Germany. And all they needed was eight minutes, just about, to turn that game around. Germany scored with Gundogan scoring a penalty in the first half. It went up one nothing, And Japan, in the 75th and I think 83rd, 84th minute. So in just a span of about 10 minutes, Japan turned the game on its head, scored two goals. Second one was a great goal, really good goal. And they beat Germany. And now Germany, big pressure test for them as they are going to face Spain in the next game. And if they lose to Spain, they are out of the World Cup for the second consecutive time. So Germany losing to Japan. The other game in Spain's group was Spain versus Costa Rica. And boy, was that a shellacking. Spain beating Costa Rica by seven goals to nil. Uh, That was not something I saw coming. That's not something that people saw coming. That's not something anybody in Spain saw coming. I thought that Spain would win, but I thought they'd win with maybe a 1-0, a 2-1, maybe even a 3-1, 3-0. Not seven. Spain put on a masterclass. They showed that they are for real. And um, I have to say, I was surprised, but pleasantly surprised. If we can play like that during this tournament, we can absolutely make an impact and certainly go on and win this thing playing like that. But that's what we need to see against Germany on Sunday. And if we go through, that's what we need to see against the better teams. The bigger teams. Costa Rica were awful. This is not the Costa Rica side that in 2014 made it to the knockout stages in Brazil in that World Cup when they had Uruguay, England, and Italy in that group. This is not that Uruguay. Excuse me. This is not that Costa Rica. This is not that Costa Rican team. I feel bad for Kaylor Navas, former Real Madrid goalkeeper. But... Costa Rica are just a team that just didn't look interested, didn't look like they wanted to be there. There was no passion, no fight. They looked dejected. Um, and, you know, for CONCACAF, it's embarrassing that, you know, again, this is the team we're sending to represent CONCACAF in the World Cup. And, uh, boy, did they underwhelm. It was embarrassing from Costa Rica, to be honest. And I expected, and I told number of people. I thought Costa Rica was going to put up a fight against Spain because I know and have seen their performances in the last World Cups. I know that they're a feisty team. They always make it difficult. They're competitive. I know that they may, maybe weren't the side of of, um, of, 20, uh, of 2014, eight years ago, but I still thought they would give me something. And as good as Spain were, Costa Rica were very much embarrassing. Uh, and I think, obviously, that did contribute to why Spain was so easily able to win that game with such a lopsided scoreline. But Spain looking great. We're going to see what happens. And clearly, my prediction and my thoughts on Spain not having firepower were completely thrown out the window by that result. Because clearly, Spain, based on that result, have proven to everyone, including myself, that they are able to score goals without a number nine, and they're able to score them plentiful. 
and the way that Spain played, the way that they dominated possession, they had 83, I think, percent percent possession in that game. Costa Rica had zero shots on goal. Zero. Zero on goal and zero shots at all in the game. Costa Rica did not shoot the ball once. Forget about shooting at the goal in between the three posts. They didn't shoot at all in that game. That tells you how bad Costa Rica were. But it also tells you how... And that right there tells you, as I was saying, sorry if it seems like the uh, connection there got cut off. Just a little technical issue there. But as I was saying, uh, that tells you, that result, that Spain game, tells you how good Spain were and how bad Costa Rica were. And that stat that I provided that Costa Rica had zero shots, uh, not just on goal, just zero shots at all in the game. So very poor from Costa Rica. Now, Belgium-Canada, this was another game that was very deceiving. Canada played very well in this game. Very impressed with Canada. They played toe-to-toe with Belgium, I think one of the favorites for this tournament. A very good team that Belgium has. Canada went toe-to-toe with them. Alfonso Davies missing a penalty to, guess who, Thibaut Courtois. I mentioned him as a big reason why Belgium can go deep in this tournament. He proved it in that first game. Belgium winning that game by a goal to nil, thanks to a long ball over the top, and a good finish by, I think, I'm going to double check who the goal scorer of that game was. It was actually a really nice goal. Um, and um, I think it was, I just want to make sure of this. Uh, now, I think it was Kevin De Bruyne who played the pass over the top in that uh, in that game. And um, Belgium, absolutely, it was Batshuayi. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was Misi Batshuayi. And I was pretty sure he was the one that scored. Just want to double-check that. They won 1-0 that game. And Canada deserved a lot more out of that game, to be honest. Belgium were not great. Canada showed that they can compete and are going to make this a dogfight in this group. They're not going to go down without a fight. That is the group with Belgium, Croatia, um, Canada. Belgium, Croatia, Canada, and Morocco. So that group, up for grabs. Canada... Not going away lightly. Belgium leaned on experience and quality to win that game. Uh, And that uh, is something that they're going to need for the rest of this tournament. But certainly they're going to have to play better. That that is without question. They're going to need to play better in this tournament if they want to make it far. um, As I expect them to. Uh, Portugal versus Ghana. Cristiano Ronaldo, the first player in World Cup history to score in five FIFA World Cups. Just an incredible record, an incredible feat. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo breaking another record, what is new, uh, as he's done throughout his entire professional career. Ronaldo scoring the penalty. He won it, put Portugal ahead. A very interesting game to watch. Ghana, they stayed in it. And even though they lost this game, the fact that they only lost it by one goal, goal difference could be a factor. Goal difference is a separating factor if teams are on the same number of points at the end of the group stage. For those of you that don't know, goal difference is the deciding factor for who goes through if two teams are tied 
with the uh, with the same number of points. If it's first and second, whoever has the better goal difference finishes first. The other team finishes second. And in trying to see who goes through between second and third, goal difference could be a factor. So even if you lose one game in this tournament, it's very important that you do not lose in a blowout. That's what's going to make it so difficult for Iran. Well, Iran also has the point difference. But in another scenario, uh, in the U.S.'s group, you know, in a lot of cases, that thumping that Iran got from England, 6-2, to two, that minus 4 goal differential is not something you want. So even though they lost by a goal, that 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 could be, you know, a major player in how that group plays out. We're going to see what happens. The Portugal getting the job done. Portugal are going to have to tighten up defensively uh, because their defending on both goals were shocking. It was absolutely awful. Um, it was a defense with a bunch of holes in it, just like Swiss cheese. And I mean, Ghana took full advantage because the few opportunities they had, a lot of them were Portugal's wrongdoing, and it was Portugal's own fault that they could not defend those two goals. Two very easily defendable goals, in my opinion. And two standout players from that game, Joao Felix, again, basically demonstrating to Diego Pablo Simeone, the Atletico Madrid coach, where he currently is a player at the club level in La Liga in Spain, currently proving to him that the fact that he's not playing him, the fact that Simeone will not play Joao Felix is completely incomprehensible because this kid, whenever he plays, he plays brilliantly and he can have an impact on the game. He is a player that you want on the field because he can impact the game. He can win a game for you. That's how good this guy is. So Joao Felix showed up. And Rafael Leal, a new young striker for Portugal. And he was brilliant in that game. Really, I thought he was fantastic. Scored a brilliant goal. A very, very tidy finish. World-class finish with the inside of his right boot. And just passed it with a nice little curve into the bottom left corner of the net to put Portugal up 3-1 at the time that he scored in that game. So Rafael Leal and Joao Felix, two players certainly to watch, obviously aside from the main man, CR7, who gets the record-breaking fifth uh, World Cup in a row. Five World Cups, who gets the record-breaking goal, five FIFA World Cups he has scored in. Cristiano Ronaldo, absolutely amazing achievement for him. As he comes down, to the end of his career. Uh, and all the storylines with Ronaldo, with what happened with Manchester United uh, over the coming, uh, over, the, over the past week and what's going to happen over the coming weeks in terms of where he's going to go. He's a free agent now as uh, Manchester United and Cristiano Ronaldo have to, uh, agreed on terminating his contract. Um, and the situation was not great for Ronaldo and Manchester United. So I think it's, it's good for him. But that's a whole other topic and issue. Um, I don't want to really focus in too much on, but I think it is worth mentioning. Portugal beating Ghana 3-2 in that game. Ghana, I think they have a chance if they can take advantage of mistakes other teams make. They were able to stay in that game, but really Portugal, they made it a lot more difficult than they should have. 
really, it should have been a much easier win for Portugal. But in the end, they did get the job done by three goals to two. And then in the game that has to be the game with the goal of the tournament so far, Richarlison, what a goal he scored in Brazil's 2-0 win over Serbia. Absolutely phenomenal. I mean, Vinicius Jr. puts in a cross from the left wing. Richarlison, first of all, he's not facing He's not facing the goal. So it's not like he can just head it and get it on frame. He controls it first time. And that control pops the ball up in the air for him to jump and scissor kick it into the net. The goal of the tournament so far, absolutely phenomenal. I mean, that is a world-class goal. That is something special. Brazil have a special player in Richarlison, and it is clear that he is going to be a big-time player and factor for Brazil in this World Cup. He single-handedly won them that game by scoring both goals, and that second goal was a thing of beauty that you could hang that thing as a portrait in any museum. That was absolutely sensational, the goal that he scored. I highly recommend, if you've not seen the highlights of that game, go watch the highlights of that game. Go watch that goal. That was something special. Brazil getting the job done, 2-0 against Serbia. It was not their greatest game, but for the first game of the World Cup, they did what they needed to do. They won their first game. As I said earlier in the podcast, 84% of the time you win your first game, you go through. So Brazil looking very good to go through in their group. Uh, And by the way, they are in Group G with Serbia which is who they played against, Switzerland and Cameroon. So Brazil looking good to go through in that group. 2-0 win for them. And then we get to the games that occurred today. To me, the two games I'm going to talk about from today, before we finish, Wales and Iran, that was a really interesting game. Iran, the much better team with much better chances on the counterattack, but very, very good counterattacks from Iran. In that game, if you watch the highlights from that game, Iran definitely had the clearest chances. And if I, I believe, yes, they did hit the post. They did hit the post. I think they hit the post twice, actually. Yes, they did. Because they had the one that hit the crossbar, and they had the other one that hit the right post on a one-on-one with the goalkeeper. So Iran much better in terms of the chances. Wales had a lot of possession, but they didn't do anything with it. It was almost a waste. So we say in Spanish, la posesión es una milonga, or as you can say, meaning eh, milonga, la posesión es una milonga. Y la posesión siendo una milonga, well, that just means that possession that is not attacking, possession that does not move forward, possession that does not offer attacking prowess is a waste and is a completely meaningless statistic. That was the complete opposite of what Spain did. Spain had 83% of the possession, but 83% of the possession in the attacking half and in the attacking third, they scored seven goals. That is possession being used to the fullest. Wales did not do really anything that was impressive in that game. It was underwhelming. It was disappointing. Gareth Bale did not show up. Aaron Ramsey did not show up. Defending was not there. Too many times Iran looked dangerous on the counterattack. 
Hence, they hit the post. Tw- they hit the post. They hit the crossbar. So, for Iran to win that game, even though it was late on, and the way they won it was very thrilling. I mean, last minute thriller uh, to win that game. A brilliant goal, by the way, too. I mean, both not just the first goal. First goal outside of the box, bent in, bottom left corner, beautiful finish, and the second goal on a counterattack where the ball is robbed. Basically, Wales trying to throw the kitchen sink because they're down one nothing, going to the last group game against England, where they know it's going to be very difficult to get a win. Uh, trying to throw the kitchen sink, and Iran steals the ball. They have a four on two, great counterattack, and a little dink over the goalkeeper to make it two nothing. Both goals really brilliant from Iran. I have to say, really good goals from Iran, and they thoroughly deserved that win because they were the better team in that game. So Wales now having to beat England to have any chance of going through. And Wales are going to have to also depend on what happens in the U.S.-Iran game. Because even if Wales win, if the United States win, they are in. So Wales could theoretically, and in the hypothetical situation that Wales wins, there's a possibility that Wales wins and doesn't go through. So that just tells you how important it is not only to win your first game, but to try and get some points under your belt heading into the last game of the group stage. And Wales has it very difficult. Not impossible. They mathematically are in it. All four teams still have a chance of qualifying in Group B. But Wales has it very difficult. They're going to have to beat England after that uh, 2-0 defeat to Iran earlier today. And then the game of the day, the United States versus England. And number one, very proud of how the U.S. played this game. That's the first thing that has to be said. The U.S. went toe-to-toe with a top team in the World Cup on the biggest stage, all the eyes of the world on them, and they performed. Christian Pulisic was outstanding tonight. So unlucky that he hit the crossbar in about the 30, I want to say it was like the 36th minute, just a little bit before halftime. He hit the crossbar in the first half. Very unlucky. Weston McKinney missed a sitter for the first one. I, I mean, I know the ball is fizzed in. I know it's not an easy chance to take. But in the World Cup, against top opposition, chances you get, you need to score. The truth of the game is in the 18-yard box. La verdad del fútbol está en la área. Where the game is decided is in the 18-yard box. You have to finish the chances you get, especially against top opponents like England. The United States had plenty of chances to score. The McKinney chance, the Pulisic post, numerous chances in the second half, including a number of free headers. And the U.S. to come out of this game with nothing is definitely a disappointment. You're happy with how they performed. You can be proud of how the team performed. The image they showed. The U.S. still with a chance to go through. But we saw it in the first game. We've seen it now. It is clear that the U.S. has a a lack of finishing. There's a lack of goal scoring ability. The U.S. should go through. They should beat Iran. But they're going to need to score when they have their chances if they want to go through and if they want to make a deep run into this tournament. They proved tonight they can compete with the top teams. 
I thought everyone was outstanding. I thought Dest was great. Matt Turner, when he needed to make the saves, made the saves. Critical save. Critical save for Matt Turner right on the stroke of halftime. Not even a minute before the final whistle of the first half. Made a really important save on Mason Mount in the first half to keep it nothing-nothing, to keep it nil-nil heading into halftime. So Matt Turner showed up when he needed to as the goalkeeper. I thought Way was good. I thought Christian Pulisic was brilliant. I thought Walker Zimmerman was pivotal, especially early on in the game. Harry Kane with a clear chance to put England in front after a really nice move down the right-hand side. Cross comes in, low cross. Harry Kane looking to just pass it in the net with his right boot. One-time finish, looking to pass it into the net, but Walker Zimmerman was in the way at the right time. So I thought he was great tonight, and overall the performance from everyone on that U.S. team is something that they should be proud of, but now you need to face the music, and the facts are, yes, you put in a great performance, yes, you showed that you can compete, and those are two really important big steps going forward for this U.S. team. But now you need to focus on, okay, we actually need to make that good play and that dominance that we had at times because the U.S. was dominant, I mean, especially in parts of the first half, but especially in parts of the second half. I mean, the U.S. had numerous corners. were constantly putting pressure on England. England looked rattled. And the U.S. was all over. I mean, the U.S. was dominating the midfield. Hence, Gareth Southgate had to bring on Jordan Henderson late on in the second half to try to calm the waters in the midfield because the U.S. was absolutely destroying England in the midfield. And so the U.S. was dominant for big portions of this game, but now they need to focus on translating that dominance into goals. They need to make that superiority count because in the World Cup, it doesn't matter if you play well, it doesn't matter if you play great, it doesn't matter if you play poor because all that is going to happen. And when you play well, yes, it's great, but at the end of the day, it's who scores. Right? The U.S. has to take their chances. The U.S. missed a lot of their chances, and therefore, they come away with a nothing-nothing. It's a good result, but based on what the game was, the U.S. should be disappointed that they didn't at least score a goal in this game because they really should have. They had the chances to do it. England, very underwhelming, very average performance. Uh, more of the usual Southgate tactics, very conservative. Um, Harry Kane had a clear chance at the beginning and end of the game. Again, the Walker-Zimmerman block was like in the sixth minute of the game. Clear chance for Harry Kane to score and put England up. And then in stoppage time at the end of the game, after 90 minutes, a clear free header for Harry Kane off a set piece from the left side of the field was swung into the box. Uh, and I think it was an out, yeah, I think it was an outswinging cross into the box from that free kick. And Harry Kane with a free header. I think he should have done a lot better. Should have at least put it on goal. Free header, but missed it wide. And that was, those were really England's only two big chances. The good thing for England, yes, a clean sheet. And Harry Maguire was absolutely immense. I mean, Harry Maguire tonight, not only in his ability to win headers, which he usually is very good at for England, but Harry Maguire's in times that the U.S. was looking to counter, get up the field quickly, England having less numbers back, Harry Maguire made some very key tackles 
to either, you know, relieve the pressure of his team, force a free throw, win the ball, steal the ball. Great anticipation at times. I thought Harry Maguire was excellent tonight. I mean, if that was the Harry Maguire we usually would see, not just for England, but at the club level, I think many different things would be said about him. Obviously, he lacks consistency. But tonight, I thought he was brilliant. I thought he was the man of the match, in, in my opinion, for England. For England, Harry Maguire was the best player on the English side for me. He controlled and kept his head calm, controlled the defense, cleared the ball when he needed to, intercepted when he needed to, relieved pressure when he needed to. He was commanding and a huge reason that England come away with a draw tonight. Honestly, I think that England are lucky to come away with a draw from this game. So they should thank the United States that they do not have the firepower up top to finish. Because if this was a Brazil, if this was a Spain, based on Spain's performance earlier this week, if this was a Portugal, uh, England would have lost this game. England would have lost this game. They were not good, very average. But again, I mentioned this earlier in the podcast. If you win your first game, like England did, it allows you to have a trip up. You can afford to draw or lose a game. You can afford to draw or lose your second game. You can afford to draw or lose your third game and still be able to go through. And even though England did not play well today, they come out with a draw, which I think they'll take, and they're still top of the group and very likely to go through unless they absolutely bottle it against Wales. So unless they absolutely flunk and cannot perform against Wales, they should be through. England should be through. So England-USA, great game for a nothing-nothing in the World Cup, even though we've had a lot of nothing-nothings, by far the best nothing-nothing of this World Cup, and for a nothing-nothing, probably the most entertaining game you can watch as a nothing-nothing, because the U.S. played very well, a lot of clear-cut chances, and England, the few chances they did have, they could have easily been goals too. So there was a bit of everything. All that was lacking was the final product from both teams. The U.S., Yes, very proud of how they performed. I'm very happy with the U.S.'s um, image, the fight that they showed, the quality that they showed, how they pressed, how they controlled, how they moved the ball, how they were able to get their main guys in it, Polisic especially, much better performance from him after the lackluster performance in the second half of the Wales game. And uh, he is going to need to continue playing like that for the U.S., you know, obviously to get through the group, and then if they want to make you know, a run in the knockout stage of this tournament. So the U.S., very proud with how they played. England, they can afford to trip up. They won their first game, and England should be through. All they need is a win or a draw against Wales. Um, and for the U.S., it's very simple. It's in their own hands. I think if you gave the U.S. fans, including myself and everyone listening, I think if all U.S. fans, if you gave us the scenario, you draw your first two games and you have it all to play against Iran 
to go through to the knockout stage. You win, you're through. I think every one of the every one of us would have signed off on that. We would have said, okay, yes. We're, we have a chance of going through in the last game of the group stage. We'll take it. But the U.S. needs to make it count. If the U.S. plays like this, the way they played today against Iran, they will be going through. If the U.S. plays more like they did against Wales, they're going to struggle. And the U.S. may be going out. So the England-USA game, a nothing-nothing, but a very entertaining and exciting nothing-nothing. And that is all that I have for you guys today. I know it was a very long episode. Um, I apologize if this is a bit long, but so much to talk about for this World Cup. So many talking points, a lot of exciting things going on, great games, some big upsets as I mentioned. Uh, and you were able to kind of get a gist of everything that I've been thinking about in terms of the buildup for this World Cup, all of the talking points, the predictions, who are the favorites, the actual games. And we're going to see what happens as this tournament progresses. But after the first week of this tournament, almost a full weekend of this tournament, it's been a fun one to watch. There's been some great upsets. There's been some heavy score lines, a lot of goals, some brilliant finishing, and a lot of good talking points. And so I think so far, you have to say this World Cup has been a success. In general, looking at it from an objective standpoint, the games have delivered, the teams have delivered, and if this continues, we're going to have a very memorable World Cup ahead of us. So thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate every single one of you tuning in to this podcast. And next episode, we're going to be talking more about the World Cup and a few, a few other things. We might talk about a few other things. I'll have to see what I want to talk about in the next episode. But stay tuned for the next episode. And we are going to keep watching what happens in this World Cup. And we're going to analyze everything. We're going to have a, an episode after the group stage to talk about what happened in the group stage and what the chances are for each team that makes it through to the knockout stages in Qatar. And uh, so a lot more reactions coming for the World Cup. It's exciting stuff, people. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a great tournament so far, and I look forward to what it has to bring in the coming weeks. And let's hope that the United States and Spain can go ahead and deliver and go through to the knockout stages, and hopefully we can be talking about them in future episodes about what their chances are in terms of winning this tournament and in going uh, on a deep run. So that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much. Please be sure to follow the podcast Instagram, Real Deal, the Real Deal, underscore three sixty. That is the Real Deal, all lowercase underscore three sixty, on Instagram. Make sure to follow all the updates on there. Follow the Instagram page. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify. Share it with all your friends, and feel free to share all your thoughts with me via email. That is Real Deal Podcast three sixty at gmail.com. Real Deal Podcast 360 at gmail.com. Be sure to share all your thoughts with me, what your thoughts on the World Cup have been so far. I'd love to read them and let me know what you think of this podcast so far, what changes you want me to make, what changes you think would help improve the show, and what you like about it, and what you want me to keep doing. So let me know about that. And let me know if you guys prefer lengthier episodes, if you guys prefer shorter episodes, how long do you want these episodes to be? Um, realistically, do you enjoy listening to long episodes? I know 
I've talked, I can talk for a very long time, uh, obviously based on this episode. Um, there was a lot to talk about, but uh, feel free to share all your thoughts with me on the podcast email. Just send me an email at realdealpodcast360 at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you for tuning in, and we will catch you on the next one. Take care and talk to you soon. Stay tuned for all updates on the Real Deal podcast. A lot of exciting stuff to talk about and a lot of exciting things coming up, especially in this World Cup. Can't wait to see what happens. So take care and we'll see you on the next one. Peace.